Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. To anyone who would rather be doing something useful with themselves. Preface on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs. In the spring of 2013, I unwittingly set off a very minor international sensation. It all began when I was asked to write an essay for a new radical magazine called Strike. The editor asked if I had anything provocative that no one else would be likely to publish. I usually have one or two essay ideas like that stewing around, so I drafted one up and presented him with a brief piece entitled On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs. The essay was based on a hunch. Everyone is familiar with those sort of jobs that don't seem, to the outsider, to really do much of anything. HR consultants, communications coordinators, PR researchers, financial strategists, corporate lawyers, or the sort of people, very familiar in academic contexts, who spend their time staffing committees that discuss the problem of unnecessary committees. The list was seemingly endless. What, I wondered, if these jobs really are useless, and those who hold them are aware of it. Certainly, you meet people now and then who seem to feel their jobs are pointless and unnecessary. Could there be anything more demoralizing than having to wake up in the morning five out of seven days of one's adult life to perform a task that one secretly believed did not need to be performed, that was simply a waste of time or resources, or that even made the world worse? Would this not be a terrible psychic wound running across our society? Yet, if so, it was one that no one ever seemed to talk about. There were plenty of surveys over whether people were happy at work. There were none, as far as I knew, about whether or not they felt their jobs had any good reason to exist. This possibility that our society is riddled with useless jobs that no one wants to talk about did not seem inherently implausible. The subject of work is riddled with taboos. Even the fact that most people don't like their jobs and would relish an excuse not to go to work is considered something that can't really be admitted on TV. Certainly not on the TV news, even if it might occasionally be alluded to in documentaries and stand-up comedy. I had experienced these taboos myself. I had once acted as the media liaison for an activist group that, rumor had it, was planning a civil disobedience campaign to shut down the Washington, D.C. transport system as part of a protest against a global economic summit. In the days leading up to it, you could hardly go anywhere looking like an anarchist without some cheerful civil servant walking up to you and asking whether it was really true he or she wouldn't have to go to work on Monday. Yet, at the same time, TV crews managed dutifully to interview city employees, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were the same city employees, commenting on how terribly tragic it would be if they wouldn't be able to get to work since they knew that's what it would take to get them on TV. No one seems to feel free to say what they really feel about such matters, at least in public. It was plausible, but I didn't really know. In a way, I wrote the piece as a kind of experiment. I was interested to see what sort of response it would elicit. This is what I wrote for the August 2013 issue. On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs in the year 1930, John Maynard Keynes predicted that, by century's end, 
technology would have advanced sufficiently that countries like Great Britain or the United States would have achieved a 15-hour workweek. There's every reason to believe he was right. In technological terms, we are quite capable of this, and yet it didn't happen. Instead, technology has been marshaled, if anything, to figure out ways to make us all work more. In order to achieve this, jobs have had to be created that are effectively pointless. Huge swaths of people, in Europe and North America in particular, spend their entire working lives performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across our collective soul. Yet virtually no one talks about it. Why did Keynes's promised utopia, still being eagerly awaited in the 60s, never materialize? The standard line today is that he didn't figure in the massive increase in consumerism. Given the choice between less hours and more toys and pleasures, we've collectively chosen the latter. This presents a nice morality tale, but even a moment's reflection shows it can't really be true. Yes, we have witnessed the creation of an endless variety of new jobs and industries since the 20s, but very few have anything to do with the production and distribution of sushi, iPhones, or fancy sneakers. So what are these new jobs precisely? A recent report comparing employment in the U.S. between 1910 and 2000 gives us a clear picture, and I note one pretty much exactly echoed in the U.K., over the course of the last century, the number of workers employed as domestic servants in industry and in the farm sector has collapsed dramatically. At the same time, professional, managerial, clerical, sales, and service workers tripled, growing from one-quarter to three-quarters of total employment. In other words, productive jobs have, just as predicted, been largely automated away. Even if you count industrial workers globally, including the toiling masses in India and China, such workers are still not nearly so large a percentage of the world population as they used to be. But rather than allowing a massive reduction of working hours to free the world's population to pursue their own projects, pleasures, visions, and ideas, we have seen the ballooning not even so much of the service sector as of the administrative sector, up to and including the creation of whole new industries like financial services or telemarketing or the unprecedented expansion of sectors like corporate law, academic and health administration, human resources, and public relations. And these numbers do not even reflect all those people whose job is to provide administrative, technical, or security support for these industries, or for that matter, the whole host of ancillary industries dog washers, all-night pizza delivery men, that only exist because everyone else is spending so much of their time working in all the other ones. These are what I propose to call bullshit jobs. It's as if someone were out there making up pointless jobs just for the sake of keeping us all working. And here precisely lies the mystery. In capitalism, this is precisely what is not supposed to happen. Sure, in the old inefficient socialist states like the Soviet Union, where employment was considered both a right and a sacred duty, the system made up as many jobs as it had to. This is why, in Soviet department stores, it took three clerks to sell a piece of meat. But, of course, 
This is the very sort of problem market competition is supposed to fix. According to economic theory, at least, the last thing a profit-seeking firm is going to do is shell out money to workers they don't really need to employ. Still, somehow, it happens. While corporations may engage in ruthless downsizing, the layoffs and speed-ups invariably fall on that class of people who are actually making, moving, fixing, and maintaining things. Through some strange alchemy no one can quite explain, the number of salaried paper pushers ultimately seems to expand, and more and more employees find themselves, not unlike Soviet workers actually, working 40 or even 50-hour weeks on paper, but effectively working 15 hours, just as Keynes predicted, since the rest of their time is spent organizing or attending motivational seminars, updating their Facebook profiles, or downloading TV box sets. The answer clearly isn't economic. It's moral and political. The ruling class has figured out that a happy and productive population with free time on their hands is a mortal danger. Think of what started to happen when this even began to be approximated in the 60s. And on the other hand, the feeling that work is a moral value in itself and that anyone not willing to submit themselves to some kind of intense work discipline for most of their waking hours deserves nothing is extraordinarily convenient for them. Once, when contemplating the apparently endless growth of administrative responsibilities in British academic departments, I came up with one possible vision of hell. Hell is a collection of individuals who are spending the bulk of their time working on a task they don't like and are not especially good at. Say they were hired because they were excellent cabinet makers, and then discover they are expected to spend a great deal of their time frying fish. Nor does the task really need to be done. At least, there's only a very limited number of fish that need to be fried. Yet, somehow, they all become so obsessed with resentment at the thought that some of their co-workers might be spending more time making cabinets and not doing their fair share of the fish-frying responsibilities, that before long, there's endless piles of useless, badly cooked fish piling up all over the workshop, and it's all that anyone really does. I think this is actually a pretty accurate description of the moral dynamics of our own economy. Now, I realize any such argument is going to run into immediate objections. Who are you to say what jobs are really necessary? What's necessary, anyway? You're an anthropology professor. What's the need for that? And, indeed, a lot of tabloid readers would take the existence of my job as the very definition of wasteful social expenditure. And, on one level, this is obviously true. There can be no objective measure of social value. I would not presume to tell someone who is convinced they are making a meaningful contribution to the world that really they are not. But what about those people who are themselves convinced their jobs are meaningless? Not long ago, I got back in touch with a school friend whom I hadn't seen since I was 15. I was amazed to discover that in the interim, he had become first a poet, then the front man in an indie rock band. I'd heard some of his songs on the radio, having no idea the singer was someone I actually knew. He was obviously brilliant, innovative, and his work had unquestionably brightened and improved the lives of people all over the world. Yet, after a couple of unsuccessful albums, he'd lost his contract and 
plagued with debts and a newborn daughter, ended up, as he put it, taking the default choice of so many directionless folk. Law school. Now he's a corporate lawyer working in a prominent New York firm. He was the first to admit that his job was utterly meaningless, contributed nothing to the world, and in his own estimation, should not really exist. There's a lot of questions one could ask here, starting with, what does it say about our society that it seems to generate an extremely limited demand for talented poet musicians, but an apparently infinite demand for specialists in corporate law? Answer, if 1% of the population controls most of the disposable wealth, what we call the market reflects what they think is useful or important, not anybody else. But even more, it shows that most people in pointless jobs are ultimately aware of it. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever met a corporate lawyer who didn't think their job was bullshit. The same goes for almost all the new industries outlined above. There is a whole class of salaried professionals that, should you meet them at parties and admit that you do something that might be considered interesting, an anthropologist, for example, will want to avoid even discussing their line of work entirely. Give them a few drinks and they will launch into tirades about how pointless and stupid their job really is. This is a profound psychological violence here. How can one even begin to speak of dignity and labor when one secretly feels one's job should not exist? How can it not create a sense of deep rage and resentment? Yet it is the peculiar genius of our society that its rulers have figured out a way, as in the case of the fish fryers, to ensure that rage is directed precisely against those who actually do get to do meaningful work. For instance, in our society, there seems to be a general rule that the more obviously one's work benefits other people, the less one is likely to be paid for it. Again, an objective measure is hard to find, but one easy way to get a sense is to ask, what would happen were this entire class of people to simply disappear? Say what you like about nurses, garbage collectors, or mechanics. It's obvious that were they to vanish in a puff of smoke, the results would be immediate and catastrophic. A world without teachers or dock workers would soon be in trouble, and even one without science fiction writers or ska musicians would clearly be a lesser place. It's not entirely clear how humanity would suffer were all private equity CEOs, lobbyists, PR researchers, actuaries, telemarketers, bailiffs, or legal consultants to similarly vanish. Many suspect it might improve markedly. I've got a lot of pushback about the actuaries and now think I was being unfair to them. Some actuarial work does make a difference. I'm still convinced the rest could disappear with no negative consequences. Yet, apart from a handful of well-touted exceptions, doctors, the rule holds surprisingly well. Even more perverse, there seems to be a broad sense that this is the way things should be. This is one of the secret strengths of right-wing populism. You can see it when tabloids whip up resentment against tube workers for paralyzing London during contract disputes. The very fact that tube workers can paralyze London shows that their work is actually necessary. But this seems to be precisely what annoys people. It's even clearer in the United States, where Republicans have had remarkable success mobilizing resentment against school teachers and auto workers, and not, significantly, 
against the school administrators or auto industry executives who actually caused the problems for their supposedly bloated wages and benefits. It's as if they are being told, but you get to teach children or make cars. You get to have real jobs. And on top of that, you have the nerve to also expect middle-class pensions and health care? If someone had designed a work regime perfectly suited to maintaining the power of finance capital, it's hard to see how he or she could have done a better job. Real, productive workers are relentlessly squeezed and exploited. The remainder are divided between a terrorized stratum of the universally reviled unemployed and a larger stratum who are basically paid to do nothing in positions designed to make them identify with the perspectives and sensibilities of the ruling class, managers, administrators, etc., and particularly its financial avatars. But, at the same time, foster a simmering resentment against anyone whose work has clear and undeniable social value. Clearly, the system was never consciously designed. It emerged from almost a century of trial and error. But it is the only explanation for why, despite our technological capacities, we are not all working three to four hour days. If ever an essay's hypothesis was confirmed by its reception, this was it. On the phenomenon of bullshit jobs produced an explosion. The irony was that the two weeks after the piece came out were the same two weeks that my partner and I had decided to spend with a basket of books and each other in a cabin in rural Quebec. We'd made a point of finding a location with no wireless. This left me in the awkward position of having to observe the results only on my mobile phone. The essay went viral almost immediately. Within weeks, it had been translated into at least a dozen languages, including German, Norwegian, Swedish, French, Czech, Romanian, Russian, Turkish, Latvian, Polish, Greek, Estonian, Catalan, and Korean, and was reprinted in newspapers from Switzerland to Australia. The original strike page received more than a million hits and crashed repeatedly from too much traffic. Blogs sprouted. Comment sections filled up with confessions from white-collar professionals. People wrote me asking for guidance or to tell me I had inspired them to quit their jobs to find something more meaningful. Here is one enthusiastic response, I've collected hundreds, from the comment section of Australia's Canberra Times. Wow, nail on the head. I am a corporate lawyer, tax litigator to be specific. I contribute nothing to this world and am utterly miserable all of the time. I don't like it when people have the nerve to say, why do it then? Because it is so clearly not that simple. It so happens to be the only way right now for me to contribute to the 1% in such a significant way so as to reward me with a house in Sydney to raise my future kids. Thanks to technology, we are probably as productive in two days as we previously were in five. But thanks to greed and some busy bee syndrome of productivity, we are still asked to slave away for the profit of others, ahead of our own non-remunerated ambitions. Whether you believe in intelligent design or evolution, humans were not made to work. So to me, this is all just greed propped up by inflated prices of necessities. At one point, I got a message from one anonymous fan who said that he was part of an impromptu group circulating the piece within the financial services community. He'd received five emails containing the essay just that day. 
Certainly one sign that many in financial services don't have much to do. None of this answered the question of how many people really felt that way about their jobs, as opposed to, say, passing on the piece as a way to drop subtle hints to others. But before long, statistical evidence did indeed surface. On January 5th, 2015, a little more than a year after the article came out, on the first Monday of the new year, that is, the day most Londoners were returning to work from their winter holidays, someone took several hundred ads in London underground cars and replaced them with a series of guerrilla posters consisting of quotes from the original essay. These were the ones they chose. Huge swaths of people spend their days performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. It's as if someone were out there making up pointless jobs for the sake of keeping us all working. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across our collective soul. Yet virtually no one talks about it. How can one even begin to speak of dignity and labor when one secretly feels one's job should not exist? The response to the poster campaign was another spate of discussion in the media. I appeared briefly on Russia Today, as a result of which the polling agency YouGov took it upon itself to test the hypothesis and conducted a poll of Britons using language taken directly from the essay. For example, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? Astonishingly, more than a third, 37%, said they believed that it did not, whereas 50% said it did and 13% were uncertain. This was almost twice what I had anticipated. I'd imagine the percentage of bullshit jobs was probably around 20%. What's more, a later poll in Holland came up with almost exactly the same results. In fact, a little higher, as 40% of Dutch workers reported that their jobs had no good reason to exist. So, not only has the hypothesis been confirmed by public reaction, it has now been overwhelmingly confirmed by statistical research. Clearly, then, we have an important social phenomenon that has received almost no systematic attention. To my knowledge, only one book has ever been written on the subject of bullshit jobs, Boulot de Merde, by Paris-based journalists Julien Brigo and Olivier Saron, 2015, and the authors told me it was directly inspired by my article. It's a good book, but covers a rather different range of questions than my own. Simply opening up a way to talk about it became, for many, cathartic. It was obvious that a larger exploration was in order. What I want to do here is a bit more systematic than the original essay. The 2013 piece was for a magazine about revolutionary politics, and it emphasized the political implications of the problem. In fact, the essay was just one of a series of arguments I was developing at the time that the neoliberal, free-market ideology that had dominated the world since the days of Thatcher and Reagan, was really the opposite of what it claimed to be. It was really a political project dressed up as an economic one. I had come to this conclusion because it seemed to be the only way to explain how those in power actually behaved. While neoliberal rhetoric was always all about unleashing the magic of the marketplace and placing economic efficiency over all other values, the overall effect of free market policies has been that rates of economic growth have slowed pretty much everywhere except India and China. 
scientific and technological advance has stagnated. And in most wealthy countries, the younger generations can, for the first time in centuries, expect to lead less prosperous lives than their parents did. Yet, on observing these effects, proponents of market ideology always reply with calls for even stronger doses of the same medicine, and politicians duly enact them. This struck me as odd. If a private company hired a consultant to come up with a business plan, and it resulted in a sharp decline in profits, that consultant would be fired. At the very least, he'd be asked to come up with a different plan. With free market reforms, this never seemed to happen. The more they failed, the more they were enacted. The only logical conclusion was that economic imperatives weren't really driving the project. What was? It seemed to me the answer had to lie in the mindset of the political class. Almost all of those making the key decisions had attended college in the 1960s, when campuses were at the very epicenter of political ferment, and they felt strongly that such things must never happen again. As a result, while they might have been concerned with declining economic indicators, they were also quite delighted to note that the combination of globalization, gutting the power of unions, and creating an insecure and overworked workforce, along with aggressively paying lip service to 60s calls to hedonistic personal liberation, what came to be known as lifestyle liberalism, fiscal conservatism, had the effect of simultaneously shifting more and more wealth and power to the wealthy and almost completely destroying the basis for organized challenges to their power. It might not have worked very well economically, but politically, it worked like a dream. If nothing else, they had little incentive to abandon such policies. All I did in the essay was to pursue this insight. Whenever you find someone doing something in the name of economic efficiency that seems completely economically irrational, like, say, paying people good money to do nothing all day, one had best start by asking, as the ancient Romans did, qui bono, who benefits, and how. This is less a conspiracy theory approach than it is an anti-conspiracy theory. I was asking why action wasn't taken. Economic trends happen for all sorts of reasons, but if they cause problems for the rich and powerful, those rich and powerful people will pressure institutions to step in and do something about the matter. This is why, after the financial crisis of 2008-9, to large investment banks were bailed out, but ordinary mortgage holders weren't. The proliferation of bullshit jobs, as we'll see, happened for a variety of reasons. The real question I was asking is why no one intervened, conspired, if you like, to do something about the matter. In this book, I want to do considerably more than that. I believe that the phenomenon of bullshit employment can provide us with a window on much deeper social problems. We need to ask ourselves, not just how did such a large proportion of our workforce find themselves laboring at tasks that they themselves consider pointless, but also, why do so many people believe this state of affairs to be normal, inevitable, even desirable? More oddly still, why, despite the fact that they hold these opinions in the abstract, and even believe that it is entirely appropriate that those who labor at 
pointless jobs should be paid more and receive more honor and recognition than those who do something they consider to be useful, do they nonetheless find themselves depressed and miserable if they themselves end up in positions where they are being paid to do nothing or nothing that they feel benefits others in any way? There is clearly a jumble of contradictory ideas and impulses at play here. One thing I want to do in this book is begin to sort them out. This will mean asking practical questions such as, how do bullshit jobs actually happen? It will also mean asking deep historical questions like, when and how did we come to believe that creativity was supposed to be painful? Or, how did we ever come up with the notion that it would be possible to sell one's time? And finally, it will mean asking fundamental questions about human nature. Writing this book also serves a political purpose. I would like this book to be an arrow aimed at the heart of our civilization. There's something very wrong with what we have made ourselves. We have become a civilization based on work. Not even productive work, but work as an end and meaning in itself. We have come to believe that men and women who do not work harder than they wish at jobs they do not particularly enjoy are bad people, unworthy of love, care, or assistance from their communities. It is as if we have collectively acquiesced to our own enslavement. The main political reaction to our awareness that half the time we are engaged in utterly meaningless or even counterproductive activities, usually under the orders of a person we dislike, is to rankle with resentment over the fact there might be others out there who are not in the same trap. As a result, hatred, resentment, and suspicion have become the glue that holds society together. This is a disastrous state of affairs. I wish it to end. If this book can in any way contribute to that end, it will have been worth writing. Chapter 1 What is a Bullshit Job? Let us begin with what might be considered a paradigmatic example of a bullshit job. Kurt works for a subcontractor for the German military. Or, actually, he is employed by a subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor for the German military. Here is how he describes his work. The German military has a subcontractor that does their IT work. The IT firm has a subcontractor that does their logistics. The logistics firm has a subcontractor that does their personnel management, and I work for that company. Let's say Soldier A moves to an office two rooms farther down the hall. Instead of just carrying his computer over there, he has to fill out a form. The IT subcontractor will get the form, people will read it and approve it, and forward it to the logistics firm. The logistics firm will then have to approve the moving down the hall and will request personnel from us. The office people in my company will then do whatever they do, and now I come in. I get an email. Be at barracks B at time C. Usually these barracks are 100 to 500 kilometers, 62 to 310 miles away from my home, so I will get a rental car. I take the rental car, drive to the barracks, let dispatch know that I arrived, fill out a form, unhook the computer, load the computer into a box, seal the box, have a guy from the logistics firm carry the box to the next room, where I unseal the box, fill out another form, hook up the computer, 
call dispatch to tell them how long I took, get a couple of signatures, take my rental car back home, send dispatch a letter with all of the paperwork, and then get paid. So, instead of the soldier carrying his computer for five meters, two people drive for a combined six to ten hours, fill out around 15 pages of paperwork, and waste a good 400 euros of taxpayers' money. This might sound like a classic example of ridiculous military red tape of the sort Joseph Heller made famous in his 1961 novel Catch-22, except for one key element. Almost nobody in this story actually works for the military. Technically, they're all part of the private sector. There was a time, of course, when any national army also had its own communications, logistics, and personnel departments. But nowadays, it all has to be done through multiple layers of private outsourcing. Kurt's job might be considered a paradigmatic example of a bullshit job for one simple reason. If the position were eliminated, it would make no discernible difference in the world. Likely as not, things would improve, since German military bases would presumably have to come up with a more reasonable way to move equipment. Crucially, not only is Kurt's job absurd, but Kurt himself is perfectly well aware of this. In fact, on the blog where he posted the story, he ended up defending the claim that the job served no purpose against a host of free market enthusiasts who popped up instantly, as free market enthusiasts tend to do on internet forums, to insist that since his job was created by the private sector, it, by definition, had to serve a legitimate purpose. This I consider the defining feature of a bullshit job one so completely pointless that even the person who has to perform it every day cannot convince himself there's a good reason for him to be doing it. He might not be able to admit this to his co-workers, often there are very good reasons not to do so, but he is convinced the job is pointless nonetheless. So, let this stand as an initial provisional definition. Provisional definition. A bullshit job is a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence. Some jobs are so pointless that no one even notices if the person who has the job vanishes. This usually happens in the public sector. Spanish civil servant skips work for six years to study Spinoza. Jewish Times, February 26, 2016. A Spanish civil servant who collected a salary for at least six years without working used the time to become an expert on the writings of Jewish philosopher Baruch Spinoza, Spanish media reported. A court in Cadiz in southern Spain last month ordered Joaquin Garcia, 69, to pay approximately $30,000 in fines for failing to show up for work at the waterboard, Agua de Cadiz, where Garcia was employed as an engineer since 1996. The news site Euronews.com reported last week. His absence was first noticed in 2010 when Garcia was due to receive a medal for long service. Deputy Mayor Jorge Blas Fernandez began making inquiries that led him to discover that Garcia had not been seen at his office in six years. Reached by the newspaper El Mundo, unnamed sources close to Garcia said he devoted himself in the years before 2010 to studying the writings of Spinoza, a 17th-century heretic Jew from Amsterdam. 
One source interviewed by El Mundo said Garcia became an expert on Spinoza, but denied claims Garcia never showed up for work, saying he came in at irregular times. This story made headlines in Spain. At a time when the country was undergoing severe austerity and high unemployment, it seemed outrageous that there were civil servants who could skip work for years without anybody noticing. Garcia's defense, however, is not without merit. He explained that while he had worked for many years dutifully monitoring the city's water treatment plant, the water board eventually came under the control of higher-ups who loathed him for his socialist politics and refused to assign him any responsibilities. He found the situation so demoralizing that he was eventually obliged to seek clinical help for depression. Finally, and with the concurrence of his therapist, he decided that rather than just continue to sit around all day pretending to look busy, he would convince the water board he was being supervised by the municipality and the municipality that he was being supervised by the water board. Check in if there was a problem, but otherwise just go home and do something useful with his life. Similar stories about the public sector appear at regular intervals. One popular one is about postal carriers who decide that rather than delivering the mail, they prefer to dump it in closets, sheds, or dumpsters, with the result that tons of letters and packages pile up for years without anyone figuring it out. Post carriers are clearly not bullshit jobs, but the implication of the story seems to be that since 99% of the mail they chose not to deliver was junk mail, they might as well have been. This seems unlikely to have actually been the case, but the story reflects on public attitudes. David Foster Wallace's novel, The Pale King, about life inside an Internal Revenue Service office in Peoria, Illinois, goes even further. It culminates in an auditor dying at his desk and remaining propped in his chair for days before anyone notices. This seems pure absurdist caricature, but in 2002, something almost exactly like this did happen in Helsinki. A Finnish tax auditor working in a closed office sat dead at his desk for more than 48 hours while 30 colleagues carried on around him. People thought he wanted to work in peace and no one disturbed him, remarked his supervisor, which, if you think about it, is actually rather thoughtful. It's stories like these, of course, that inspire politicians all over the world to call for a larger role for the private sector where it is always claimed such abuses would not occur. And while it is true so far that we have not heard any stories of FedEx or UPS employees stowing their parcels in garden sheds, privatization generates its own, often much less genteel, varieties of madness, as Kurt's story shows. I need hardly point out the irony in the fact that Kurt was ultimately working for the German military. The German military has been accused of many things over the years, but inefficiency was rarely one of them. Still, a rising tide of bullshit soils all boats. In the 21st century, even panzer divisions have come to be surrounded by a vast penumbra of sub, sub-sub, and sub-sub-subcontractors. Tank commanders are obliged to perform complex and exotic bureaucratic rituals in order to move equipment from one room to another, even as those providing the paperwork secretly post elaborate complaints to blogs about how idiotic the whole thing is. If these cases are anything to go by, 
The main difference between the public and private sectors is not that either is more or less likely to generate pointless work. It does not even necessarily lie in the kind of pointless work each tends to generate. The main difference is that pointless work in the private sector is likely to be far more closely supervised. This is not always the case. As we'll learn, the number of employees of banks, pharmaceutical companies, and engineering firms allowed to spend most of their time updating their Facebook profiles is surprisingly high. Still, in the private sector, there are limits. If Kurt were to simply walk off the job to take up the study of his favorite 17th century Jewish philosopher, he would be swiftly relieved of his position. If the Cadiz water board had been privatized, Joaquin Garcia might well still have been deprived of responsibilities by managers who disliked him, but he would have been expected to sit at his desk and pretend to work every day anyway, or find alternate employment. I will leave listeners to decide for themselves whether such a state of affairs should be considered an improvement. Why a mafia hitman is not a good example of a bullshit job. To recap, what I am calling bullshit jobs are jobs that are primarily or entirely made up of tasks that the person doing that job considers to be pointless, unnecessary, or even pernicious. Jobs that, were they to disappear, would make no difference whatsoever. Above all, these are jobs that the holders themselves feel should not exist. Contemporary capitalism seems riddled with such jobs. As I mentioned in the preface, a YouGov poll found that in the United Kingdom, only 50% of those who had full-time jobs were entirely sure their job made any sort of meaningful contribution to the world, and 37% were quite sure it did not. A poll by the firm Schutten and Nellison, carried out in Holland, put the latter number as high as 40%. If you think about it, these are staggering statistics. After all, a very large percentage of jobs involves doing things that no one could possibly see as pointless. One must assume that the percentage of nurses, bus drivers, dentists, street cleaners, farmers, music teachers, repairmen, gardeners, firefighters, set designers, plumbers, journalists, safety inspectors, musicians, tailors, and school crossing guards who check no to the question, does your job make any meaningful difference in the world, was approximately zero. My own research suggests that store clerks, restaurant workers, and other low-level service providers rarely see themselves as having bullshit jobs either. Many service workers hate their jobs, but even those who do are aware that what they do does make some sort of meaningful difference in the world. Typical remark from Rufus. I'd love to tell you that my most worthless job was making lattes for very particular and peculiar people, but in retrospect, I understand I played a vital role in helping them through their day. So if 37% to 40% of a country's working population insists their work makes no difference whatsoever, and another substantial chunk suspects that it might not, one can only conclude that any office worker who one might suspect secretly believes themselves to have a bullshit job does indeed believe this. The main thing I would like to do in this first chapter is to define what I mean by bullshit jobs. In the next chapter, I will lay out a typology of what I believe the main varieties of bullshit jobs to be. 
This will open the way in later chapters to considering how bullshit jobs come about, why they have come to be so prevalent, and to considering their psychological, social, and political effects. I am convinced these effects are deeply insidious. We have created societies where much of the population, trapped in useless employment, have come to resent and despise equally those who do the most useful work in society and those who do no paid work at all. But before we can analyze this situation, it will be necessary to address some potential objections. The listener may have noticed a certain ambiguity in my initial definition. I describe bullshit jobs as involving tasks the holder considers to be pointless, unnecessary, or even pernicious. But, of course, jobs that have no significant effect on the world and jobs that have pernicious effects on the world are hardly the same thing. Most of us would agree that a mafia hitman does more harm than good in the world overall. But could you really call mafia hitman a bullshit job? That just feels somehow wrong. As Socrates teaches us, when this happens, when our own definitions produce results that seem intuitively wrong to us, it's because we're not aware of what we really think. Hence, he suggests that the true role of philosophers is to tell people what they already know but don't realize that they know. One could argue that anthropologists like myself do something similar. The phrase bullshit jobs clearly strikes a chord with many people. It makes sense to them in some way. This means they have, at least on some sort of tacit, intuitive level, criteria in their minds that allow them to say, that was such a bullshit job, or that one was bad, but I wouldn't say it was exactly bullshit. Many people with pernicious jobs feel the phrase fits them. Others clearly don't. The best way to tease out what those criteria are is to examine borderline cases. So, why does it feel wrong to say a hitman has a bullshit job? I should observe that the following is drawn mainly from pop culture representations of hitmen rather than any ethnographic or sociological analysis of real ones. I suspect there are multiple reasons, but one is that the mafia hitman, unlike, say, a foreign currency speculator or a brand marketing researcher, is unlikely to make false claims. True, a mafioso will usually claim he's merely a businessman, but insofar as he is willing to own up to the nature of his actual occupation at all, he will tend to be pretty upfront about what he does. He is unlikely to pretend his work is in any way beneficial to society, even to the extent of insisting it contributes to the success of a team that's providing some useful product or service, drugs, prostitution, and so on. Or, if he does, the pretense is likely to be paper-thin. This allows us to refine our definition. Bullshit jobs are not just jobs that are useless or pernicious. Typically, there has to be some degree of pretense and fraud involved as well. The job holder must feel obliged to pretend that there is, in fact, a good reason why her job exists, even if privately she finds such claims ridiculous. There has to be some kind of gap between pretense and reality. This makes sense etymologically. Bullshitting is, after all, a form of dishonesty. Interestingly enough, bull is not an abbreviation for bullshit, but bullshit is an early 20th century elaboration on bull. 
The term is ultimately derived from the French bol, meaning fraud or deceit. The term bullshit is first attested in an unpublished poem by T.S. Eliot. Bollocks is another derivation from bowl. I would have said lying, but the philosopher Harry Frankfurt, 2005, famously argued that bullshitting is not the same as lying. The difference between them is analogous to the difference between murder and manslaughter. One is intentional deception, the other reckless disregard for the truth. I'm not sure the distinction entirely works in this context, but I didn't think entering a debate on the subject would be particularly helpful. So, we might make a second pass. Provisional Definition 2 A bullshit job is a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. Of course, there is another reason why Hitman should not be considered a bullshit job. The hitman is not personally convinced his job should not exist. Most mafiosi believe they are part of an ancient and honorable tradition that is of value in its own right, whether or not it contributes to the larger social good. This is, incidentally, the reason why feudal overlord is not a bullshit job either. Kings, earls, emperors, pashas, emirs, squires, zamindars, landlords, and the like might arguably be useless people. Many of us would insist, and I would be inclined to agree, that they play pernicious roles in human affairs. But they don't think so. So unless the king is secretly a Marxist, or a Republican, one can say confidently that king is not a bullshit job. This is a useful point to bear in mind, because most people who do a great deal of harm in the world are protected against the knowledge that they do so. Or they allow themselves to believe the endless accretion of paid flunkies and yes-men that inevitably assemble around them to come up with reasons why they are really doing good. Nowadays, these are sometimes referred to as think tanks. This is just as true of financial speculating investment bank CEOs as it is of military strongmen in countries such as North Korea, and Azerbaijan. Mafiosi families are unusual, perhaps, because they make few such pretensions. But, in the end, they are just miniature, illicit versions of the same feudal tradition, being originally enforcers for local landlords in Sicily, who have, over time, come to operate on their own hook. To fully appreciate the feudal connection, the listener might consider the name Corleone. This was the name of the fictional mafia family in Mario Puzo's novel and Francis Ford Coppola's film, The Godfather. But, in fact, it's the name of a town in Sicily that is notorious for being the home of many famous mafiosi. In Italian, it means Lionheart. The reason for this appears to be that the Normans who conquered England in 1066 had also conquered previously Arab-held Sicily and imported many features of Arabic administration. Listeners will recall in most Robin Hood stories, the arch-villain is the Sheriff of Nottingham, and the distant king away at the Crusades is Richard the Lionhearted. The word sheriff is just an anglicization of the Arabic sharif, and was one of those positions inspired by the administration of Sicily. The exact connection between Corleone and the British king is debated, but some connection definitely exists. So, however indirectly, the Marlon Brando character in The Godfather 
is named after Richard the Lionhearted. There's one final reason why Hitman cannot be considered a bullshit job. It's not entirely clear that Hitman is a job in the first place. True, the Hitman might well be employed by the local crime boss in some capacity or other. Perhaps the crime boss makes up some dummy security job for him in his casino. In that case, we can definitely say that job is a bullshit job. But he is not receiving a paycheck in his capacity as a hitman. This point allows us to refine our definition even further. When people speak of bullshit jobs, they are generally referring to employment that involves being paid to work for someone else, either on a waged or salaried basis. Most would also include paid consultancies. Obviously, there are many self-employed people who manage to get money from others by means of falsely pretending to provide them with some benefit or service. Normally, we call them grifters, scam artists, charlatans, or frauds, just as there are self-employed people who get money off others by doing or threatening to do them harm. Normally, we refer to them as muggers, burglars, extortionists, or thieves. In the first case, at least, we can definitely speak of bullshit but not of bullshit jobs, because these aren't jobs, properly speaking. A con job is an act, not a profession. So is a Brinks job. People do sometimes speak of professional burglars, but this is just a way of saying that theft is the burglar's primary source of income. Many burgle in their spare time. An apartment complex in which I once lived was once plagued by a series of burglaries that always took place on a Monday. It was eventually determined that the burglar was a hairdresser who generally get Mondays off. No one is actually paying the burglar regular wages or a salary to break into people's homes. For this reason, one cannot say that burglar is precisely a job either. Many thieves, ranging from art thieves to ordinary shoplifters, will hire out their services, but as such, they are still just independent contractors, hence self-employed. The case of the hitman is more ambiguous. Some might argue that if one is a long-standing but subordinate member of a criminal organization, that does qualify as a job, but it's not my impression. I don't really know, of course, that most people in such positions see it quite that way. These considerations allow us to formulate what I think can serve as a final working definition. Final working definition. A bullshit job is a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though, as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. On the importance of the subjective element, and also why it can be assumed that those who believe they have bullshit jobs are generally correct. This, I think, is a serviceable definition. Good enough, anyway, for the purposes of this book. The attentive listener may have noticed one remaining ambiguity. The definition is mainly subjective. I define a bullshit job as one that the worker considers to be pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious. But I also suggest that the worker is correct. I do not say such a job is a form of paid employment that feels so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence. I say it's a form of paid employment 
that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence. In other words, I'm not just saying that the employee believes his work to be bullshit, but that his belief is both valid and correct. I'm assuming there is an underlying reality here. One really has to make this assumption because otherwise we'd be stuck with accepting that the exact same job could be bullshit one day and non-bullshit the next, depending on the vagaries of some fickle worker's mood. All I'm really saying here is that since there is such a thing as social value, as apart from mere market value, but since no one has ever figured out an adequate way to measure it, the worker's perspective is about as close as one is likely to get to an accurate assessment of the situation. Let me take my own situation as an example. I am currently employed as a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. There are people who consider anthropology to be the very definition of a bullshit subject. In 2011, Governor Rick Scott of Florida even singled out the discipline as his prime example of one his state's universities would be better off without. Often, it's pretty obvious why this should be the case. If an office worker is really spending 80% of her time designing cat memes, her co-workers in the next cubicle may or may not be aware of what's going on, but there's no way that she is going to be under any illusions about what she's doing. But even in more complicated cases, where it's a question of how much the worker really contributes to an organization, I think it's safe to assume the worker knows best. I'm aware this position will be taken as controversial in certain quarters. Executives and other bigwigs will often insist that most people who work for a large corporation don't fully understand their contributions, since the big picture can be seen only from the top. I'm not saying this is entirely untrue. Frequently, there are some parts of the larger context that lower-level workers cannot see or simply aren't told about. This is especially true if the company is up to anything illegal. I've been told that inside Countrywide Financial, one of the key players in the subprime mortgage scandals of 2008, there were basically two ranks in the company, the lowly nerds and the insiders, the insiders being those who had been told about the scams. I encountered an even more extreme example in my own research. One woman wrote to me that she had worked for almost a year selling advertising for an in-flight magazine that she gradually realized did not exist. She became suspicious when she realized she had never once seen a copy of the magazine in the office or on an airplane, despite the fact she was a fairly frequent flyer. Eventually, her co-workers quietly confirmed that the entire operation was a fraud. But it's been my experience that any underling who works for the same outfit for any length of time, say a year or two, will normally be taken aside and let in on the company's secrets. True, there are exceptions. Sometimes managers intentionally break up tasks in such a way that the workers don't really understand how their efforts contribute to the overall enterprise. Banks will often do this. I've even heard examples of factories in America where many of the line workers were unaware of what the plant was actually making. Though, in such cases, it almost always turned out to be because the owners had intentionally hired people who didn't speak English. Still, in those cases, workers tend to assume that their jobs are useful. They just don't know how. 
Generally speaking, I think employees can be expected to know what's going on in an office or on a shop floor, and certainly to understand how their work does or does not contribute to the enterprise. At least, better than anybody else. With the higher-ups, that's not always clear. There are exceptions to this as to all rules. In many large organizations like banks, as we will see, top-level managers will hire consultants or internal auditors to figure out what it is that people actually do. One bank analyst told me about 80% of bank workers are engaged in unnecessary tasks, and most he felt were unaware of it, since they were kept in the dark about their role in the larger organization. Still, he said, their supervisors didn't know much better, and his suggestions for reform were invariably rejected. It's important to emphasize here, too, it's not that people mistakenly believed their jobs to be bullshit, but quite the other way around. One frequent theme I encountered in my research was of underlings wondering, in effect, does my supervisor actually know that I spend 80% of my time designing cat memes? Are they just pretending not to notice, or are they actually unaware? And since the higher up the chain of command you are, the more reason people have to hide things from you, the worse this situation tends to become. The real sticky problem comes in when it's a question of whether certain kinds of work, say telemarketing, market research, consulting, are bullshit. That is, whether they can be said to produce any sort of positive social value. Here, all I'm saying is that it's best to defer to the judgment of those who do that kind of work. Social value, after all, is largely just what people think it is. In which case, who else is in a better position to judge? In this instance, I'd say, if the preponderance of those engaged in a certain occupation privately believe their work is of no social value, one should proceed along the assumption they are right. Even here, one can imagine objections. What about Scientologists? Most of those who provide e-meter sessions to allow people to discover traumas in their past lives seem to be convinced their work has enormous social value, even as the great majority of the population is convinced they are delusional or frauds. But again, this isn't really relevant as no one is really saying faith healer is a bullshit job. Sticklers will no doubt raise objections here too. They might ask, how can one actually know for sure what the majority of people working in an industry secretly think? And the answer is that obviously, you can't. Even if it were possible to conduct a poll of lobbyists or financial consultants, it's not clear how many would give honest answers. When I spoke in broad strokes about useless industries in the original essay, I did so on the assumption that lobbyists and financial consultants are, in fact, largely aware of their uselessness. Indeed, that many, if not most of them, are haunted by the knowledge that nothing of value would be lost to the world were their jobs simply to disappear. I could be wrong. It is possible that corporate lobbyists or financial consultants genuinely subscribe to a theory of social value that holds their work to be essential to the health and prosperity of the nation. It is possible they therefore sleep securely in their beds, confident that their work is a blessing for everyone around them. I don't know. 
But I suspect this is more likely to be true as one moves up the food chain, since it would appear to be a general truth that the more harm a category of powerful people do in the world, the more yes-men and propagandists will tend to accumulate around them, coming up with reasons why they are really doing good. And the more likely it is that at least some of those powerful people will believe them. A case could be made that often propaganda, which is ostensibly aimed at tricking outsiders, is really primarily aimed at assuaging the consciences of the propagandists themselves. Corporate lobbyists and financial consultants certainly do seem responsible for a disproportionately large share of the harm done in the world, at least harm carried out as part of one's professional duties. Perhaps they really do have to force themselves to believe in what they do. In that case, finance and lobbying wouldn't be bullshit jobs at all. They'd actually be more like hitmen. At the very, very top of the food chain, this does appear to be the case. I remarked in the original 2013 piece, for instance, that I'd never known a corporate lawyer who didn't think his or her job was bullshit. But, of course, that's also a reflection of the sort of corporate lawyers that I'm likely to know the sort who used to be poet-musicians. But even more significantly, the sort who are not particularly high-ranking. It's my impression that genuinely powerful corporate lawyers think their roles are entirely legitimate. Or perhaps they simply don't care whether they're doing good or harm. At the very top of the financial food chain, that's certainly the case. In April 2013, by a strange coincidence, I happened to be present at a conference on fixing the banking system for good, held inside the Philadelphia Federal Reserve, where Jeffrey Sachs, the Columbia University economist most famous for having designed the shock therapy reforms applied to the former Soviet Union, had a live-on-video link session in which he startled everyone by presenting what careful journalists might describe as an unusually candid assessment of those in charge of America's financial institutions. Sachs' testimony is especially valuable because, as he kept emphasizing, many of these people were quite upfront with him because they assumed, not entirely without reason, that he was on their side. Look, I meet a lot of these people on Wall Street on a regular basis right now. I know them. These are the people I have lunch with. And I am going to put it very bluntly. I regard the moral environment as pathological. These people have no responsibility to pay taxes. They have no responsibility to their clients. They have no responsibility to counterparties and transactions. They are tough, greedy, aggressive, and feel absolutely out of control in a quite literal sense. And they have gained the system to a remarkable extent. They genuinely believe they have a God-given right to take as much money as they possibly can in any way that they can get it, legal or otherwise. If you look at the campaign contributions, which I happened to do yesterday for another purpose, the financial markets are the number one campaign contributors in the U.S. system now. We have a corrupt politics to the core. Both parties are up to their necks in this. But what it's led to is this sense of impunity that is really stunning, and you feel it on the individual level right now. And it's very, very unhealthy. I've waited for four years, five years now, to see one figure on Wall Street speak in a moral language. And I have not seen it 
once. So, there you have it. If Sachs was right, and honestly, who is in a better position to know, then at the commanding heights of the financial system, we're not actually talking about bullshit jobs. We're not even talking about people who have come to believe their own propagandists. Really, we're just talking about a bunch of crooks. Another distinction that's important to bear in mind is between jobs that are pointless and jobs that are merely bad. I will refer to the latter as shit jobs, since people often do. The only reason I bring up the matter is because the two are so often confused, which is odd because they're in no way similar. In fact, they might almost be considered opposites. Bullshit jobs often pay quite well and tend to offer excellent working conditions. They're just pointless. Shit jobs are usually not at all bullshit. They typically involve work that needs to be done and is clearly of benefit to society. It's just that the workers who do them are paid and treated badly. Some jobs, of course, are intrinsically unpleasant but fulfilling in other ways. There's an old joke about the man whose job it was to clean up elephant dung after the circus. No matter what he did, he couldn't get the smell off his body. He'd change his clothes, wash his hair, scrub himself endlessly, but he still reeked, and women tended to avoid him. An old friend finally asked him, Why do you do this to yourself? There are so many other jobs you could do. The man answered, What? And give up show business? These jobs can be considered neither shit nor bullshit, whatever the content of their work. Other jobs, ordinary cleaning, for example, are in no sense inherently degrading, but they can easily be made so. The cleaners at my current university, for instance, are treated very badly. As in most universities these days, their work has been outsourced. They are employed not directly by the school, but by an agency, the name of which is emblazoned on the purple uniforms they wear. They are paid little, obliged to work with dangerous chemicals that often damage their hands or otherwise force them to have to take time off to recover, for which time they are not compensated, and generally treated with arbitrariness and disrespect. There is no particular reason that cleaners have to be treated in such an abusive fashion, but at the very least, they take some pride in knowing and, in fact, I can attest, for the most part, do take pride in knowing, that buildings do need to be cleaned, and therefore, without them, the business of the university could not go on. In fact, over the course of my research, I've run into a surprising number of people, well, three, with college educations who, frustrated by the pointlessness of the office work available to them, actually did become cleaners simply to feel they were doing an honest day's work. Shit jobs tend to be blue-collar and pay by the hour, whereas bullshit jobs tend to be white-collar and salaried. Those who work shit jobs tend to be the object of indignities. They not only work hard, but also are held in low esteem for that very reason. But at least they know they're doing something useful. Those who work bullshit jobs are often surrounded by honor and prestige. They are respected as professionals, well-paid and treated as high achievers as the sort of people who can be justly proud of what they do. Yet secretly, they are aware that they have achieved nothing. They feel they have done nothing to earn the consumer toys with which they fill their lives. They feel it's all based on a lie. As indeed, 
it is. These are two profoundly different forms of oppression. I certainly wouldn't want to equate them. Few people I know would trade in a pointless middle management position for a job as a ditch digger, even if they knew that the ditches really did need to be dug. I do know people who quit such jobs to become cleaners, though, and are quite happy that they did. All I wish to emphasize here is that each is indeed oppressive in its own way. I really shouldn't have to point this out, but since I find there will always be some listeners who have a hard time with basic logic, saying shit jobs tend to be useful and productive is not saying that all useful and productive jobs tend to be shit. It is also theoretically possible to have a job that is both shit and bullshit. I think it's fair to say that if one is trying to imagine the worst type of job one could possibly have, it would have to be some kind of combination of the two. Once, while serving time in exile at a Siberian prison camp, Dostoevsky developed the theory that the worst torture one could possibly devise would be to force someone to endlessly perform an obviously pointless task. Even though convicts sent to Siberia had theoretically been sentenced to hard labor, he observed, the work wasn't actually all that hard. Most peasants worked far harder. But peasants were working at least partly for themselves. In prison camps, the hardness of the labor was the fact that the laborer got nothing out of it. It once came into my head that if it were desired to reduce a man to nothing, to punish him atrociously, to crush him in such a manner that the most hardened murderer would tremble before such a punishment and take fright beforehand. It would only be necessary to give to his work a character of complete uselessness, even to absurdity. Hard labor, as it is now carried on, presents no interest to the convict, but it has its utility. The convict makes bricks, digs the earth, builds, and all his occupations have a meaning and an end. Sometimes the prisoner may even take an interest in what he is doing. He then wishes to work more skillfully, more advantageously. But let him be constrained to pour water from one vessel into another, to pound sand, to move a heap of earth from one place to another and then immediately move it back again. Then I am persuaded that at the end of a few days, the prisoner would hang himself or commit a thousand capital crimes, preferring rather to die than endure such humiliation shame, and torture. My friend, Andrei Grubacek, tells me this was actually done to his grandfather as a form of torture in a Titoist re-education camp in Yugoslavia in the 1950s. The jailers had evidently read the classics. On the common misconception that bullshit jobs are confined largely to the public sector. So far, we have established three broad categories of jobs. Useful jobs which may or may not be shit jobs, bullshit jobs, and a small but ugly penumbra of jobs such as gangsters, slum lords, top corporate lawyers, or hedge fund CEOs, made up of people who are basically just selfish bastards and don't really pretend to be anything else. The three-part list is not meant to be comprehensive. For instance, it leaves out the category of what's often referred to as guard labor, much of which, unnecessary supervisors, is bullshit but much of which is simply obnoxious or bad. In each case, I think it's fair to trust that those who have these jobs know best which category they belong to. 
What I'd like to do next, before turning to the typology, is to clear up a few common misconceptions. If you toss out the notion of bullshit jobs to someone who hasn't heard the term before, that person may assume you're really talking about shit jobs. But if you clarify, he is likely to fall back on one of two common stereotypes. He may assume you're talking about government bureaucrats, or if he's a fan of Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he may assume you're talking about hairdressers. Let me deal with the bureaucrats first, since it's the easiest to address. I doubt anyone would deny that there are plenty of useless bureaucrats in the world. What's significant to me, though, is that nowadays, useless bureaucrats seem just as rife in the private sector as in the public sector. You are as likely to encounter an exasperating little man in a suit reading out incomprehensible rules and regulations in a bank or mobile phone outlet than in the passport office or zoning board. Even more, public and private bureaucracies have become so increasingly entangled that it's often very difficult to tell them apart. That's one reason I started this chapter the way I did, with the story of a man working for a private firm contracting with the German military. Not only did it highlight how wrong it is to assume that bullshit jobs exist largely in government bureaucracies, but also it illustrates how market reforms almost invariably create more bureaucracy, not less. As I pointed out in an earlier book, The Utopia of Rules, if you complain about getting some bureaucratic runaround from your bank, bank officials are likely to tell you it's all the fault of government regulations. But if you research where those regulations actually come from, you'll likely discover that most of them were written by the bank. Nonetheless, the assumption that government is necessarily top-heavy with feather bedding and unnecessary levels of administrative hierarchy, while the private sector is lean and mean, is by now so firmly lodged in people's heads that it seems no amount of evidence will dislodge it. No doubt some of this misconception is due to memories of countries such as the Soviet Union, which had a policy of full employment and was therefore obliged to make up jobs for everyone, whether a need existed or not. This is how the USSR ended up with shops where customers had to go through three different clerks to buy a loaf of bread, or road crews where, at any given moment, two-thirds of the workers were drinking, playing cards, or dozing off. This is always represented as exactly what would never happen under capitalism. The last thing a private firm, competing with other private firms, would do is to hire people it doesn't actually need. If anything, the usual complaint about capitalism is that it's too efficient, with private workplaces endlessly hounding employees with constant speed-ups, quotas, and surveillance. Obviously, I'm not going to deny that the latter is often the case. In fact, the pressure on corporations to downsize and increase efficiency has redoubled since the mergers and acquisitions frenzy of the 1980s. But this pressure has been directed almost exclusively at the people at the bottom of the pyramid, the ones who are actually making, maintaining, fixing, or transporting things. Anyone forced to wear a uniform in the exercise of his daily labors, for instance, is likely to be hard-pressed. In fact, that's largely what making someone wear a uniform means, since uniforms are often placed on people, say those working in a hotel laundry, who are never seen by the public at all. It's a way of saying you should think of yourself as being under military discipline. 
FedEx and UPS delivery workers have back-breaking schedules designed with scientific efficiency. In the upper echelons of those same companies, things are not the same. We can, if we like, trace this back to the key weakness in the managerial cult of efficiency. It's Achilles' heel, if you will. When managers began trying to come up with scientific studies of the most time- and energy-efficient ways to deploy human labor, they never applied those same techniques to themselves. Or, if they did, the effect appears to have been the opposite of what they intended. As a result, the same period that saw the most ruthless application of speed-ups and downsizing in the blue-collar sector also brought a rapid multiplication of meaningless managerial and administrative posts in almost all large firms. It's as if businesses were endlessly trimming the fat on the shop floor and using the resulting savings to acquire even more unnecessary workers in the offices upstairs. As we'll see in some companies, this was literally the case. The end result was that, just as socialist regimes had created millions of dummy proletarian jobs, capitalist regimes somehow ended up presiding over the creation of millions of dummy, white-collar jobs instead. We'll examine how this happened in detail later in the book. For now, let me just emphasize that almost all the dynamics we will be describing happen equally in the public and private sectors, and that this is hardly surprising, considering that today, the two sectors are almost impossible to tell apart. Why hairdressers are a poor example of a bullshit job. If one common reaction is to blame government, another is, oddly, to blame women. Once you put aside the notion that you're only talking about government bureaucrats, many will assume you must be talking, above all, about secretaries, receptionists, and various sorts of, typically female, administrative staff. Now, clearly... Many such administrative jobs are indeed bullshit by the definition developed here, but the assumption that it's mainly women who end up in bullshit jobs is not only sexist, but also represents, to my mind, a profound ignorance of how most offices actually work. It's far more likely that the female administrative assistant for a male vice dean or strategic network manager is the only person doing any real work in that office and that it's her boss who might as well be lounging around in his office playing World of Warcraft, or, very possibly, actually is. I will return to this dynamic in the next chapter when we examine the role of flunkies. Here, I will just emphasize that we do have statistical evidence in this regard. While the YouGov survey didn't break down its results by occupation, which is a shame, it did break them down by gender. The result was to reveal that men are far more likely to feel that their jobs are pointless, 42%, than women do, 32%. Again, it seems reasonable to assume that they are right. Oddly, the survey did break down the results by political voting preferences. Tory voters were least, and UKIP voters most likely to think their jobs were bullshit. And region, southern England outside London was highest at 42% bullshit rate, Scotland lowest at 27%. Age and social grade seemed relatively insignificant. Finally, the hairdressers. I'm afraid to say that Douglas Adams has a lot to answer for here. Sometimes it seemed to me that whenever I would propose the notion that a large percentage of the work being done in our society was unnecessary, some man, it was always a man, 
would pop up and say, Oh yes, you mean like hairdressers? Then he would usually make it clear that he was referring to Douglas Adams's sci-fi comedic novel, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, in which the leaders of a planet called Golga Frenchem decided to rid themselves of their most useless inhabitants by claiming falsely that the planet is about to be destroyed. To deal with the crisis, they create an arc fleet of three ships, A, B, and C. The first to contain the creative third of the population, the last to include blue-collar workers, and the middle one to contain the useless remainder. All are to be placed in suspended animation and sent to a new world. Except that only the B ship is actually built, and it is sent on a collision course with the sun. The book's heroes accidentally find themselves on ship B, investigating a hall full of millions of space sarcophagi, full of such useless people whom they initially assume to be dead. One begins reading off the plaques next to each sarcophagus. It says, Golga Frenchum Arc Fleet Ship B, Hold 7, Telephone Sanitizer, Second Class, and a serial number. A telephone sanitizer, said Arthur. A dead telephone sanitizer? Best kind. But what's he doing here? Ford peered through the top at the figure within. Not a lot, he said and suddenly flashed one of those grins of his which always made people think he'd been overdoing things recently and should try to get some rest. He scampered over to another sarcophagus. A moment's brisk towel work, and he announced, This one's a dead hairdresser. Hoopie! The next sarcophagus revealed itself to be the last resting place of an advertising account executive. The one after that contained a second-hand car salesman, third class. Now, it's obvious why this story might seem relevant to those who first hear of bullshit jobs, but the list is actually quite odd. For one thing, professional telephone sanitizers don't really exist. And while advertising executives and used car salesmen do, and are indeed professions society could arguably be better off without, for some reason, when Douglas Adams' aficionados recall the story, it's always the hairdressers they remember. There has been some debate, as one might imagine, among Douglas Adams fans on this topic, but the consensus seems to be that, while some jobs in the 1970s involved cleaning phones and other electronic equipment, telephone sanitizer as a separate profession did not exist. This did not stop Adams from collaborating with Graham Chapman of Monty Python in creating a TV special starring Ringo Starr called The Telephone Sanitizers of Navarone, which, sadly, was never produced. I will be honest here. I have no particular bone to pick with Douglas Adams. In fact, I have a fondness for all manifestations of humorous British 70s sci-fi. But nonetheless, I find this particular fantasy alarmingly condescending. First of all, the list is not really a list of useless professions at all. It's a list of the sort of people a middle-class bohemian living in Islington around that time would find mildly annoying. Does that mean that they deserve to die? To be fair, we learn later that the joke was on the Golga Frenchums, since they all eventually die from a plague that started from an improperly sanitized telephone. But no one ever seems to remember that part. Myself, I fantasize about eliminating the jobs, not the people who have to do them. To justify extermination, Adam seems to have intentionally selected people that he thought were not only useless, 
but also could be thought of as embracing or identifying with what they did. Before moving on, then, let us reflect on the status of hairdressers. Why is a hairdresser not a bullshit job? Well, the most obvious reason is precisely because most hairdressers do not believe it to be one. To cut and style hair makes a demonstrable difference in the world, and the notion that it is a necessary vanity is purely subjective. Who is to say whose judgment of the intrinsic value of hairstyling is correct? Adams's first novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which became something of a cultural phenomenon, was published in 1979. I well remember, as a teenager in New York in that year, observing how small crowds would often gather outside the barbershop on Astor Place to watch punk rockers get elaborate purple mohawks. Was Douglas Adams suggesting those giving them the mohawks also deserve to die, or just those hairdressers whose style sense he did not appreciate? In working-class communities, hair parlors often serve as gathering places. Women of a certain age and background are known to spend hours at the neighborhood hair parlor, which becomes a place to swap local news and gossip. Hair salons in immigrant communities will often serve a similar role for both men and women. I even had some friends who became the in-house barbers for a big London squad who found this started happening to them as well. Anyone new to town would stop in for a trim to find out what was going on. It's hard to escape the impression, though, that in the minds of those who invoke hairdressers as a prime example of a useless job, this is precisely the problem. They seem to be imagining a gaggle of middle-aged women idly gossiping under their metallic helmets while others fuss about making some marginal attempts at beautification on a person who, it is suggested, being too fat, too old, and too working class, will never be attractive no matter what is done to her. It's basically just snobbery with a dose of gratuitous sexism thrown in. Logically, objecting to hairdressers on this basis makes about as much sense as saying running a bowling alley or playing bagpipes is a bullshit job because you personally don't enjoy bowling or bagpipe music and don't much like the sort of people who do. Now, some might feel I am being unfair. How do you know, they might object, that Douglas Adams wasn't really thinking, not of those who hairdress for the poor, but of those who hairdress for the very rich? What about super-posh hairdressers who charge insane amounts of money to make the daughters of financiers or movie executives look odd in some up-to-the-moment fashion? Might they not harbor a secret suspicion that their work is valueless, even pernicious? Would not that then qualify them as having a bullshit job? In theory, of course, we must allow this could be correct. But let us explore the possibility more deeply. Obviously, there is no objective measure of quality whereby one can say that haircut X is worth $15, haircut Y $150, and haircut Z $1,500. In the latter case, most of the time, what the customer is paying for anyway is mainly just the ability to say she paid $1,500 for a haircut, or perhaps that he got his hair done by the same stylist as Kim Kardashian or Tom Cruise. We are speaking of overt displays of wastefulness and extravagance. Now, one could certainly make the argument that there's a deep structural affinity between wasteful extravagance and bullshit, and theorists of economic psychology from Thorstein Veblen to Sigmund Freud to Georges Bataille 
have pointed out that at the very pinnacle of the wealth pyramid, think here of Donald Trump's gilded elevators, there's a very thin line between extreme luxury and total crap. There's a reason why in dreams, gold is often symbolized by excrement and vice versa. What's more, there is indeed a long literary tradition, starting with the French writer Émile Zola's Un Bonheur des Dames, The Lady's Delight in 1883, and running through innumerable British comedy routines, celebrating the profound feelings of contempt and loathing that merchants and sales staff and retail outlets often feel for both their clients and the products they sell them. If the retail worker genuinely believes that he provides nothing of value to his customers, can we then say that retail worker does indeed have a bullshit job? I would say the technical answer, according to our working definition, would have to be yes. But, at least according to my own research, the number of retail workers who feel this way is actually quite small. Purveyors of expensive perfumes might think their products are overpriced and their clients are mostly boorish idiots, but they rarely feel the perfume industry itself should be abolished. My own research indicated that within the service economy, there were only three significant exceptions to this rule. Information technology, IT providers, telemarketers, and sex workers. Many of the first category, and pretty much all of the second, were convinced they were basically engaged in scams. The final example is more complicated and probably moves us into territory that extends beyond the precise confines of bullshit job into something more pernicious, but I think it's worth taking note of nonetheless. While I was conducting research, a number of women wrote to me or told me about their time as pole dancers, playboy club bunnies, frequenters of sugar daddy websites and the like, and suggested that such occupations should be mentioned in my book. The most compelling argument to this effect was from a former exotic dancer, now professor, who made a case that most sex work should be considered a bullshit job because... While she acknowledged that sex work clearly did answer a genuine consumer demand, something was terribly, terribly wrong with any society that effectively tells the vast majority of its female population they are worth more dancing on boxes between the ages of 18 and 25 than they will be at any subsequent point in their lives, whatever their talents or accomplishments. If the same woman can make five times as much money stripping as she could teaching as a world-recognized scholar, could not the stripping job be considered bullshit simply on that basis? Not to mention, she added, the fact that the amount of money invested in keeping them dancing on boxes could, if redirected, easily suffice to head off the threat of climate change. The sex industry makes it evident that the most valuable thing that many women can offer is their bodies as sexual commodities when they are very young. It determines that many women earn more at 18 to 25 than they ever do again in their lives. This is definitely the case in my own life. The author, being a successful academic and author who still doesn't make as much a year as she once might have in three months stripping. It's hard to deny the power of her argument. One might add that the mutual contempt between service provider and service user in the sex industry is often far greater than what one might expect to find in even the fanciest boutique. The only objection I could really raise here is that her argument might not go far enough. It's not so much that stripper is a bullshit job, perhaps, 
but that this situation shows us to be living in a bullshit society. As evidence for this generalization, if telemarketers or useless middle managers were to be made illegal, a black market would be unlikely to emerge to replace them. Obviously, historically, this has tended to happen in the case of sex work. This is why one might say the problem is patriarchy itself. The concentration of so much wealth and power in the hands of males who are then kept sexually unfulfilled or taught to seek out certain forms of gratification rather than others, and therefore something much more essential to the nature of society itself. On the difference between partly bullshit jobs, mostly bullshit jobs, and purely and entirely bullshit jobs. Finally, I must very briefly address the inevitable question. What about jobs that are just partly bullshit? This is a tough one, because there are very few jobs that don't involve at least a few pointless or idiotic elements. To some degree, this is probably just the inevitable side effect of the workings of any complex organization. Still, it's clear there is a problem, and the problem is getting worse. I don't think I know anyone who has had the same job for 30 years or more who doesn't feel that the bullshit quotient has increased over the time he or she has been doing it. I might add that this is certainly true of my own work as a professor. Teachers in higher education spend increasing amounts of time filling out administrative paperwork. This can actually be documented, since one of the pointless tasks we are asked to do, and never used to be asked to do, is to fill out quarterly time allocation surveys in which we record precisely how much time each week we spend on administrative paperwork. All indications suggest that this trend is gathering steam. As the French version of Slate magazine noted in 2013, la de l'économie non est qu'à ses débuts. The bullshitization of the economy has only just begun. However inexorable, the process of bullshitization is highly inconsistent. It has, for obvious reasons, affected middle-class employment more than working-class employment. And within the working class, it has been traditionally female caregiving work that has been the main target of bullshitization. Many nurses, for instance, complain to me that as much as 80% of their time is now taken up with paperwork, meetings, and the like, while truck drivers and bricklayers still carry on largely unaffected. In this area, we do have some statistics from the U.S. edition of the 2016-2017 to State of Enterprise Work Report. According to the survey, the amount of time American office workers say they devoted to their actual duties declined from 46% in 2015 to 39% in 2016, owing to a proportionate rise in time dealing with emails, up from 12% to 16%, wasteful meetings, 8% to 10%, and administrative tasks, 9% to 11%. Figures that dramatic must be partly the result of random statistical noise. After all, if such trends really continued, in less than a decade, no U.S. office worker would be doing any real work at all. But, if nothing else, the survey makes abundantly clear that 1. More than half of working hours in American offices are spent on bullshit, and 2. The problem is getting worse. As a result, it is indeed possible to say there are partly bullshit jobs, mostly bullshit jobs, and purely and entirely bullshit jobs. This just happens to be a book about the latter, 
or to be precise, about entirely or overwhelmingly bullshit jobs. Not mostly bullshit jobs, where the meter hovers anywhere near 50%. In no sense am I denying that the bullshitization of all aspects of the economy is a critically important social issue. Simply consider the figures cited earlier. If 37% to 40% of jobs are completely pointless, and at least 50% of the work done in non-pointless office jobs is equally pointless, we can probably conclude that at least half of all work being done in our society could be eliminated without making any real difference at all. Actually, the number is almost certainly higher, because this would not even be taking into consideration second-order bullshit jobs. Real jobs done in support of those engaged in bullshit. I'll discuss these in Chapter 2. We could easily become societies of leisure and institute a 20-hour work week. Maybe even a 15-hour week. Instead, we find ourselves as a society condemned to spending most of our time at work, performing tasks that we feel make no difference in the world whatsoever. In the rest of this book, I will explore how we ended up in this alarming state of affairs. Chapter 2 What Sorts of Bullshit Jobs Are There? My research has revealed five basic types of bullshit jobs. In this chapter, I will describe them and outline their essential features. First, a word about this research. I am drawing on two large bodies of data. In the wake of my original 2013 essay on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs, a number of newspapers in different countries ran the essay as an opinion piece, and it was also reproduced on a number of blogs. As a result, there was a great deal of online discussion, over the course of which many participants made references to personal experiences of jobs they considered particularly absurd or pointless. I downloaded 124 of these and spent some time sorting through them. The second body of data was actively solicited. In the second half of 2016, I created an email account devoted solely to research, and used my Twitter account to encourage people who felt they now or once had a bullshit job to send in first-hand testimonies. I did this by creating an email account, do I have a BS job or what, at gmail.com, and asking for input on Twitter. Gmail, rather quaintly, does not allow the word bullshit in addresses. The response was impressive. I ended up assembling over 250 such testimonies, ranging from single paragraphs to 11-page essays detailing whole sequences of bullshit jobs, along with speculations about the organizational or social dynamics that produce them, and descriptions of their social and psychological effects. Most of these testimonies were from citizens of English-speaking countries, but I also received testimonies from all over continental Europe, as well as Mexico, Brazil, Egypt, India, South Africa, and Japan. Some of these were deeply moving, even painful to read. Many were hilarious. Needless to say, almost all respondents insisted their names not be used. The names, therefore, are all made up, and I have avoided naming any specific employers or geographic information that might give identities away. For instance, a famous university in New Haven, Connecticut, or a small publishing firm based in Devon County, England, owned by a consortium in Berlin. 
In some cases, such details are changed. In other cases, simply left out. After culling the responses and trimming them of extraneous material, I found myself with a database of more than 110,000 words, which I duly color-coded. The results might not be adequate for most forms of statistical analysis, but I found them an extraordinarily rich source for qualitative analysis, especially since, in many cases, I've been able to ask follow-up questions and, in some, to engage in long conversations with informants. Some of the key concepts I'll be developing in the book were first suggested in or inspired by such conversations. So, in a way, the book can be seen as a collaborative project. This is particularly true of the following typology, which grew directly from these conversations and which I like to see less as my own creation and more as the product of an ongoing dialogue. The quotations that follow are all drawn from this database unless otherwise indicated. I have kept them largely as I received them, except for some light editing, changing abbreviations into full words, adjusting punctuation, minor grammatical or stylistic tweaks, and so forth. The Five Major Varieties of Bullshit Jobs No typology is perfect, and I'm sure there are many ways one could draw the lines, each revealing in its own way, but over the course of my research, I have found it most useful to break down the types of bullshit job into five categories. I will call these flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers, and taskmasters. One BBC video that has been drawn to my attention divides pointless jobs into three types. No work at work, managers of management that manage managers, and negative social value. Let us consider each in turn. One. What flunkies do. Flunky jobs are those that exist only or primarily to make someone else look or feel important. Another term for this category might be feudal retainers. Throughout recorded history, rich and powerful men and women have tended to surround themselves with servants, clients, sycophants, and minions of one sort or another. Not all of these are actually employed in the grandee's household, and many of those who are, are expected to do at least some actual work. But especially at the top of the pyramid, there is usually a certain portion whose job it is to basically just stand around and look impressive. So, in 1603, one William Perkins wrote, It is required that such as are commonly called serving men should have, beside the office of waiting, some other particular calling, unless they tend on men of great place and state. For waiting servants, by reason they spend most of their time in eating and drinking, sleeping and gaming after dinner and after supper, do prove the most unprofitable members both in church and commonwealth. For when either their good masters die, or they be turned out of their office for some misdemeanor, they are not fit for any calling, being unable to labor, and thus they give themselves either to beg or to steal. On the history of the term waiter, listen to chapter 6. I should also emphasize that I am not saying real feudal retainers were bullshit jobs in the modern sense, since they rarely felt obliged to claim to be anything other than what they were. Insofar as they misrepresented themselves, it was by pretending to do less than they actually did, not more. You cannot be magnificent without an entourage, and for the truly magnificent, the very uselessness of the uniformed retainers hovering around you 
is the greatest testimony to your greatness. Well into the Victorian era, for instance, wealthy families in England still employed footmen, liveried servants whose entire purpose was to run alongside carriages checking for bumps in the road. They also ran occasional errands. One gets a sense of how common such characters used to be by how many different words for them there were. Not just footmen, but flunkies, henchmen, gophers, minions, lackeys, cronies, menials, attendants, hirelings, knaves, myrmidons, retainers, and valets. And these are just those that most immediately come to mind. All these are not to be confused with toadies, cronies, sidekicks, sycophants, parasites, stooges, yes-men, and the like, who are more in the order of independent hangers-on. It's worthy of pointing out that in European courts, it was really the courtiers who performed no useful function. The uniformed attendants actually did all sorts of odd jobs when they weren't standing around during ceremonial events. But the whole point was to look as if they didn't. Servants of this sort are normally given some minor task to justify their existence, but this is really just a pretext. In reality, the whole point is to employ handsome young men in flashy uniforms ready to stand by the door looking regal while you hold court, or to stride gravely in front of you when you enter the room. Often retainers are given military-style costumes and paraphernalia to create the impression that the rich person who employs them has something resembling a palace guard. Such roles tend to multiply in economies based on rent extraction and the subsequent redistribution of the loot. Just as a thought experiment, imagine you were a feudal class extracting 50% of every peasant household's product. If so, you are in possession of an awful lot of food. Enough, in fact, to support a population exactly as large as that of peasant food producers. I recognize that it is extremely rare for the rate of extraction to be that high, but as I say, this is just a thought experiment to bring out the dynamics that tend to emerge in such situations. You have to do something with it, and there are only so many people any given feudal lord can keep around as chefs, wine stewards, scullery maids, harem eunuchs, musicians, jewelers, and the like. Even after you've taken care to ensure you have enough men trained in the use of weapons to suppress any potential rebellion, there's likely to be a great deal left over. As a result, indigents, runaways, orphans, criminals, women in desperate situations, and other dislocated people will inevitably begin to accumulate around your mansion. Because, after all, that's where all the food is. You can drive them away, but then they're likely to form a dangerous vagabond class that might become a political threat. The obvious thing to do is to slap a uniform on them and assign them some minor or unnecessary task. It makes you look good, and at least that way you can keep an eye on them. Now, later, I'm going to suggest that a dynamic not entirely different happens under the existing form of capitalism, but... For the moment, all I really want to stress is that assigning people minor tasks as an excuse to have them hang around making you look impressive has a long and honorable history. One might even say it's one of those things of which what we call honor historically consisted of. So, what might the modern equivalent be? Some old-fashioned feudal-style retainer jobs still do exist, 
The number of domestic servants in North Atlantic countries has declined precipitously since the First World War, but to a large extent, their ranks have been replaced, first by what are called service workers. Waiter, for instance, was originally the name for a kind of household servant. And second, by ever-growing legions of administrative assistants and other such underlings in the corporate sector. For an example of old feudal styles of unnecessary labor bleeding into the present day, consider this account. My friend is working on a film set in an old manor house in Hertfordshire, where he runs errands and ensures that the crew don't mess up the nice old building. At the end of every day, he has to spend two solid hours candle watching. The lord and lady of the house told the crew that after the candles are extinguished in the main hall, someone must watch them for at least two hours to make sure they don't spontaneously burst into flames again and burn the house down. My friend is not allowed to douse the candles in water or cheat it anyway. When asked why he wasn't allowed to stick the candles in water, he replied, "They gave no explanation." Doormen are the most obvious example. They perform the same function in the houses of the very rich that electronic intercoms have performed for everyone else since at least the 1950s. One former concierge complains, "Bill, another bullshit job. Concierge in one of these buildings." Half my time was spent pressing a button to open the front door for residents and saying hello as they passed through the lobby. If I didn't get to that button in time and a resident had to open the door manually, I'd hear about it from my manager. In some countries, such as Brazil, such buildings still have uniformed elevator operators whose entire job is to push the button for you. There is a continuum from explicit feudal leftovers of this type. To receptionists and front desk personnel at places that obviously don't need them. Goethe. In 2010, I worked as a receptionist at a Dutch publishing company. The phone rang maybe once a day, so I was given a couple of other tasks: keep candy dish full of mints. Mints were supplied by someone else at the company. I just had to take a handful out of a drawer next to the candy dish and put them in the candy dish. Once a week. I would go to a conference room and wind a grandfather clock. I found this task stressful, actually, because they told me that if I forgot or waited too long, all of the weights would fall, and I would be left with the onerous task of grandfather clock repair. The task that took the most time was managing another receptionist, Avon Sales. Clearly, one call a day could be handled by someone else at the press in the same manner it is in most people's homes. Whoever happens to be the closest to the phone and isn't in the middle of something else picks it up and answers. Why shell out a full-time salary and benefits package for a woman? Actually, it would seem in this case two women, just to sit at the front desk all day doing nothing. The answer is because not doing so would be shocking and bizarre. No one would take a company seriously if it had no one at all sitting at the front desk. Any publisher who defied convention that blatantly would cause potential authors or merchants or contractors to ask themselves, if they don't feel they have to have a receptionist, what other things that publishers are normally expected to do might they just decide doesn't apply to them? Pay me, for example. Just to be absolutely clear, there are plenty of receptionists who serve a necessary function. I'm referring here to those who do not. Receptionists are required as a badge of seriousness, even if there's nothing else for them to do. Other flunkies are badges of importance. The following account is from Jack.
who was hired as a cold caller in a low-level securities trading firm. Such firms, he explains, operate by stolen corporate directories, internal company phone books that some enterprising individual has stolen a physical copy of and then sold to various firms. Brokers then call upper-level employees of the companies and try to pitch them stocks. Jack. My job as a cold caller was to call these people, not to try to sell them stocks, but rather to offer free research material on a promising company that is about to go public, emphasizing that I was calling on behalf of a broker. That last point was especially stressed to me during my training. The reasoning behind this was that the brokers themselves would seem, to the potential client, to be more capable and professional if they were so damn busy making money that they needed an assistant to make this call for them. There was literally no other purpose to this job than to make my neighbor the broker appear to be more successful than he actually was. I was paid $200 per week, cash, literally from the broker's wallet, for making him look like a high roller. But this didn't just make for social capital for the broker with regards to his clients. In the office itself, being a broker with your own cold collar was a status symbol, and an important one in such a hyper-masculine, hyper-competitive office environment. I was some kind of totem figure for him. Owning me could mean the difference between his getting a meeting with a visiting regional head or not. But for the most part, it just put him on a slightly higher rung on the social ladder of the workplace. The ultimate goal of such brokers being to sufficiently impress their boss that they would be moved from the lowly trading pit to an office of their own upstairs. Jack's conclusion? My position at this company was wholly unnecessary and served no purpose whatsoever other than to make my immediate superior look and feel like a big shot. This is the very definition of a flunky job. The pettiness of the game here, even in the 1990s, $200 was not a lot of money, helps lay bare dynamics that might express themselves in more opaque ways in larger and more complex corporate environments. There we often find cases where no one is entirely sure how or why certain positions were invented and maintained. Here is Ophelia, who works for an organization that runs social marketing campaigns. Ophelia. My current job title is Portfolio Coordinator, and everyone always asks what that means or what it is I actually do. I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure it out. My job description says all sorts of stuff about facilitating relationships between partners, etc., which, as far as I'm concerned, just means answering occasional queries. It has occurred to me that my actual title refers to a bullshit job. However, the reality of my working life is functioning as a personal assistant to the director. And in that role, I do have actual work tasks that need doing, simply because the people I assist are either too busy or too important to do this stuff themselves. In fact, most of the time, I seem to be the only one at my workplace who has something to do. Some days, I run around frantically, whilst most of the mid-level managers sit around and stare at a wall, seemingly bored to death and just trying to kill time doing pointless things, like that one guy who rearranges his backpack for a half hour every day. Obviously, there isn't enough work to keep most of us occupied, but in a weird logic that probably just makes them all feel more important about their own jobs, we are now recruiting another manager. Maybe this is to keep up the illusion that there's so much to do? 
Ophelia suspects her job was originally just an empty place filler, created so that someone could boast about the number of employees he had working under him. But once it was created, a perverse dynamic began to set in, whereby managers offloaded more and more of their responsibilities onto the lowest-ranking female subordinate, her, to give the impression that they were too busy to do such things themselves, leading, of course, to their having even less to do than previously, a spiral culminating in the apparently bizarre decision to hire another manager to stare at the wall or play Pokemon all day, just because hiring him would make it look like that was not what everyone else was doing. Ophelia ends up sometimes working frenetically, in part because the few necessary tasks handed off to her are augmented with completely made-up responsibilities designed to keep low-level staff bustling. Ophelia We are divided between two organizations and two buildings. If my boss, the boss of the whole place in fact, goes to the other building, I have to fill in a form to book a room for her. Every time. It is absolute insanity, but it certainly keeps the receptionist over there very busy and therefore indispensable. It also makes her appear very organized, juggling and filing all this paperwork. It occurs to me that this is what they really mean in job ads when they say that they expect you to make office procedures more efficient, that you create more bureaucracy to fill the time. Ophelia's example highlights a common ambiguity. Whose job is really bullshit? That of the flunky or the boss? Sometimes, as we've seen with Jack, it's clearly the former. The flunky really does only exist to make his or her immediate superior look or feel important. In cases like that, no one minds if the flunky does absolutely nothing. Steve. I just graduated, and my new job basically consists of my boss forwarding emails to me with the message, Steve, refer to the below, and I reply that the email is inconsequential or straight-up spam. In other cases, as with Ophelia, the flunkies end up effectively doing the boss's jobs for them. This, of course, was the traditional role of female secretaries, now relabeled administrative assistants, working for male executives during most of the 20th century. While, in theory, secretaries were there just to answer the phone, take dictation, and do some light filing, in fact, they often ended up doing 80% to 90% of their boss's jobs and sometimes 100% of its non-bullshit aspects. It would be fascinating, though probably impossible, to write a history of books, designs, plans, and documents attributed to famous men that were actually written by their secretaries. The same remains true today, incidentally. I am personally acquainted with one young woman who, despite having no military experience whatsoever, ended up as personal assistant to a NATO official actually writing many strategic plans for operations in a war zone. Neither do I have any reason to believe her plans weren't just as good or better than any NATO general would have come up with. So in such cases, who has the bullshit job? Here again, I think we are forced to fall back on the subjective element. The middle manager in Ophelia's office reorganizing his backpack for a half hour every day may or may not have been willing to admit his job was pointless, but those hired just to make someone like him seem important almost invariably know it and resent it, even when it doesn't involve making up unnecessary busywork. Judy The only full-time job I ever had, 
in human resources in a private sector engineering firm, was wholly not necessary. It was there only because the HR specialist was lazy and didn't want to leave his desk. I was an HR assistant. My job took, I shit you not, one hour a day. An hour and a half max. The other seven or so hours were spent playing 2048 or watching YouTube. Phone never rang. Data were entered in five minutes or less. I got paid to be bored. My boss could have easily done my job yet again. Fucking lazy turd. When I was doing anthropological fieldwork in Highland, Madagascar, I noticed that wherever one found the tomb of a famous nobleman, one also invariably found two or three modest graves directly at its foot. When I asked what these modest graves were, I would always be told these were his soldiers. Really, a euphemism for slaves. The meaning was clear. To be an aristocrat meant to have the power to order others around. Even in death, if you didn't have underlings, you couldn't really claim to be a noble. An analogous logic seems to be at work in corporate environments. Why did the Dutch publishing outfit need a receptionist? Because a company has to have three levels of command in order to be considered a real company. At the very least, there must be a boss and editors, and those editors have to have some sort of underlings or assistants. At the very minimum, the one receptionist who is a kind of collective underling to all of them. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a corporation, but just some kind of hippie collective. Once the unnecessary flunky is hired, whether or not that flunky ends up being given anything to do is an entirely secondary consideration. That depends on a whole list of extraneous factors. For instance, whether or not there is any work to do, the needs and attitudes of the superiors, gender dynamics, and institutional constraints. If the organization grows in size, higher-ups' importance will almost invariably be measured by the total number of employees working under them, which, in turn, creates an even more powerful incentive for those on top of the organizational ladder to either hire employees and only then decide what they are going to do with them, or, even more often perhaps, to resist any efforts to eliminate jobs that are found to be redundant. As we'll see, testimonies from consultants hired to introduce efficiencies in a large corporation, say a bank or a medical supply corporation, attest to the awkward silences and outright hostility that ensue when executives realize those efficiencies will have the effect of automating away a significant portion of their subordinates. By doing so, they would effectively reduce managers to nothing. Kings of the air. For without flunkies, to whom exactly would they be superior? 2. What goons do. The use of this term is, of course, metaphorical. I'm not using it to mean actual gangsters or other forms of hired muscle. Rather, I'm referring to people whose jobs have an aggressive element, but crucially, who exist only because other people employ them. The most obvious example of this are national armed forces. Countries need armies only because other countries have armies. If no one had an army, armies would not be needed. At the very least, this is true of high-tech weaponry. One might argue that most countries also maintain armies to suppress real or potential civil unrest, but this rarely involves a need for fighter jets, submarines, or MX missiles. 
Historically, Mexico has had an explicit policy of not wasting money on such expensive toys, arguing that, owing to their geographic position, the only countries they'd be likely to enter into hostilities with would be either the USA or Guatemala. If they went to war with the USA, they'd lose, pretty much regardless of armament. If they went to war with Guatemala, they'd win, with or without fighter jets. Hence, Mexico merely maintained such equipment as would suffice to suppress domestic dissent. But the same can be said of most lobbyists, PR specialists, telemarketers, and corporate lawyers. Also, like literal goons, they have a largely negative impact on society. I think almost anyone would concur that, were all telemarketers to disappear, the world would be a better place. But I think most would also agree that if all corporate lawyers, bank lobbyists, or marketing gurus were to similarly vanish in a puff of smoke, the world would be at least a little bit more bearable. The obvious question is, are these really bullshit jobs at all? Would these not be more like the mafia hitmen of the last chapter? After all, in most cases, goons are clearly doing something to further the interests of those who employ them, even if the overall effect of their profession's existence might be considered detrimental to humanity as a whole. Here again, we must appeal to the subjective element. Sometimes the ultimate pointlessness of a line of work is so obvious that few involved make much effort to deny it. Most universities in the United Kingdom now have public relations offices with staffs several times larger than would be typical for, say, a bank or an auto manufacturer of roughly the same size. Does Oxford really need to employ a dozen-plus PR specialists to convince the public it's a top-notch university? I'd imagine it would take at least that many PR agents quite a number of years to convince the public Oxford was not a top-notch university, and even then, I suspect the task would prove impossible. Obviously, I'm being slightly facetious here. This is not the only thing a PR department does. I'm sure in the case of Oxford... Much of its day-to-day -day concerns involve more practical matters, such as attracting to the university the children of oil magnates or corrupt politicians from foreign lands who might otherwise have gone to Cambridge. But still, those in charge of public relations, strategic communications, and the like at many elite universities in the UK have sent me testimonies making it clear that they do indeed feel their jobs are largely pointless. I have included goons as a category of bullshit job largely for this reason, because so many of those who hold them feel their jobs have no social value and ought not to exist. Recall the words of the tax litigator from the preface. I am a corporate lawyer, I contribute nothing to this world, and am utterly miserable all of the time. Unfortunately, it is almost impossible to ascertain how many corporate lawyers secretly share this feeling. The YouGov survey did not break down its results by profession, and while my own research confirms such feelings are by no means unique, none of those who reported such attitudes were particularly high-level. The same is true of those who work in marketing or PR. The reason I thought the word goon appropriate is because in almost all cases, goons find their jobs objectionable, not just because they feel they lack positive value, but also because they see them as essentially manipulative and aggressive. Tom, I work for a very large American-owned post-production company based in London. There are parts of my job that have always been very enjoyable and fulfilling. 
I get to make cars fly, buildings explode, and dinosaurs attack alien spaceships for movie studios, providing entertainment for audiences worldwide. More recently, however, a growing percentage of our customers are advertising agencies. They bring us adverts for well-known branded products. Shampoos, toothpaste, moisturizing creams, washing powders, etc. And we use visual effects trickery to make it seem like these products actually work. We also work on TV shows and music videos. We reduce bags under the eyes of women, make hair shinier, teeth whiter, make pop stars and film stars look thinner, etc. We airbrush skin to remove spots, isolate the teeth and color correct them to make them whiter, also done on the clothes and washing powder ads. Paint out split ends and add shiny highlights to hair and shampoo commercials, and there are special deforming tools to make people thinner. These techniques are literally used in every commercial on TV, plus most TV drama shows and lots of movies, particularly on female actors, but also on men. We essentially make viewers feel inadequate whilst they're watching the main programs and then exaggerate the effectiveness of the solutions provided in the commercial breaks. I get paid a hundred thousand pounds a year to do this. When I asked why he considered his job to be bullshit, as opposed to merely, say, evil, Tom replied, Tom, I consider a worthwhile job to be one that fulfills a pre-existing need or creates a product or service that people hadn't thought of that somehow enhances and improves their lives. I believe we passed the point where most jobs were these types of jobs a long time ago. Supply has far outpaced demand in most industries, so now it is demand that is manufactured. My job is a combination of manufacturing demand and then exaggerating the usefulness of the product sold to fix it. In fact, you could argue that that is the job of every single person that works in or for the entire advertising industry. If we're at the point where in order to sell products, you have to first of all trick people into thinking they need them, then I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that these jobs aren't bullshit. Such conversations are particularly challenging to me since, in the 1980s, Academics such as myself largely abandoned the idea that consumer demand was the product of marketing manipulation and took up the idea that consumers were basically patching together crazy quilt identities by using consumer goods in ways that had never really been intended, as if everyone in America had turned into Snoop Dogg or RuPaul. Granted, I was always pretty suspicious of that narrative, but it's clear that many of those who work in the industry are quite certain that they really are what everyone thought they were in the 60s and 70s. In advertising, marketing, and publicity, discontent of this sort runs so high that there is even a magazine, Adbusters, produced entirely by workers in the industry who resent what they are made to do for a living and wish to use the powers they've acquired in advertising for good instead of evil. For instance, by designing flashy subvertising that attacks consumer culture as a whole. Tom, for his part, didn't consider his job bullshit because he objected to consumer culture in itself. He objected because he saw his beauty work, as he called it, as inherently coercive and manipulative. He was drawing a distinction between what might be called honest illusions and dishonest ones. When you make dinosaurs attack spaceships, no one actually thinks that's real. Much as with a stage magician, half the fun is that everyone knows a trick is being played, 
They just don't know exactly how it's done. When you subtly enhance the appearance of celebrities, in contrast, you are trying to change a viewer's unconscious assumptions about what everyday reality, in this case of men's and women's bodies, ought to be like, so as to create an uncomfortable feeling that their lived reality is itself an inadequate substitute for the real thing. Where honest illusions add joy into the world, dishonest ones are intentionally aimed toward convincing people their worlds are a tawdry and miserable sort of place. Similarly, I received a very large number of testimonies from call center employees. None considered his or her job bullshit because of conditions of employment. Actually, these appeared to vary enormously from nightmarish levels of surveillance to surprisingly relaxed, but because the work involved tricking or pressuring people into doing things that weren't really in their best interest. Here's a sampling. I had a bunch of bullshit call center jobs selling things that people didn't really want slash need, taking insurance claims, conducting pointless market research. It's a bait and switch, offering a free service first, and then asking you for $1.95 for a two-week trial subscription in order for you to finish the process and get you what you went on the website to acquire, and then signing you up for an auto-renewal for a monthly service that's more than ten times that amount. It's not just a lack of positive contribution, but you're making an active negative contribution to people's day. I called people up to hawk them useless shit they didn't need, specifically access to their credit score that they could obtain for free elsewhere, but that we were offering, with some mindless add-ons, for £6.99 a month. Most of the support covered basic computer operations the customer could easily Google. They were geared toward old people, or those that didn't know better, I think. Our call center's resources are almost wholly devoted to coaching agents on how to talk people into things they don't need, as opposed to solving the real problems they're calling about. So once again, what really irks is, one, the aggression, and two, the deception. Here, I can speak from personal experience. Having done such jobs, albeit usually very, very briefly, there are few things less pleasant than being forced against your better nature to try to convince others to do things that defy their common sense. I will be discussing this issue in greater depth in the next chapter on spiritual violence, but for now, let us merely note that this is at the very heart of what it is to be a goon. 3. What duct tapers do. Duct tapers are employees whose jobs exist only because of a glitch or fault in the organization, who are there to solve a problem that ought not to exist. I am adopting the term from the software industry, but I think it has more general applicability. One testimony from a software developer describes the industry like this. Pablo. Basically, we have two kinds of jobs. One kind involves working on core technologies, solving hard and challenging problems, etc. The other one is taking a bunch of core technologies and applying some duct tape to make them work together. The former is generally seen as useful. The latter is often seen as less useful or even useless, but in any case, much less gratifying than the first kind. The feeling is probably based on the observation that if core technologies were done properly, there would be little or no need for duct tape. 
Pablo's main point is that with the growing reliance on free software, freeware, paid employment is increasingly reduced to duct taping. Coders are often happy to perform the interesting and rewarding work on core technologies for free at night, but since that means they have less and less incentive to think about how such creations will ultimately be made compatible, that means the same coders are reduced during the day to the tedious but paid work of making them fit together. This is a very important insight, and I'll be discussing some of its implications at length later. But for now, let's just consider the notion of duct taping itself. Cleaning is a necessary function. Things get dusty even if they just sit there, and the ordinary conduct of life tends to leave traces that need to be tidied up. But cleaning up after someone who makes a completely gratuitous and unnecessary mess is always irritating. Having a full-time occupation cleaning up after such a person can only breed resentment. Sigmund Freud even spoke of housewife's neurosis, a condition that he believed affected women forced to limit their life horizons to tidying up after others, and who therefore became fanatical about domestic hygiene as a form of revenge. This is often the moral agony of the duct taper. To be forced to organize one's working life around caring about a certain value, say cleanliness, precisely because more important people could not care less. The most obvious examples of duct tapers are underlings whose jobs are to undo the damage done by sloppy or incompetent superiors. Magda I once worked for an SME, a small or medium-sized enterprise, where I was the tester. I was required to proofread research reports written by their posh star researcher statistician. The man didn't know the first thing about statistics, and he struggled to produce grammatically correct sentences. He tended to avoid using verbs. He was so bad, I'd reward myself with a cake if I found a coherent paragraph. I lost 12 pounds working in that company. My job was to convince him to undertake a major reworking of every report he produced. Of course, he would never agree to correct anything, let alone undertake a rework, so I would then have to take the report to the company directors. They were statistically illiterate too, but being the directors, they could drag things out even more. There is, it seems, a whole genre of jobs that involve correcting the damage done by a superior who holds his position for reasons unrelated to ability to do the work. This overlaps somewhat with flunky positions where the job holder has to do the superior's work, but it's not exactly the same thing. Here's another example of a programmer who got a job for a firm run by a Viennese psychologist who fancied himself an old-style scientific revolutionary and who had invented what was, in the company, referred to simply as the algorithm. The algorithm aimed to reproduce human speech. The company sold it to pharmacists to use on their websites. Except, it didn't work. Nuri. The company's founding genius was this Viennese research psychologist who claimed to have discovered the algorithm. For many months, I was never allowed to see it. I just wrote stuff that used it. The psychologist's code kept failing to give sensible results. Typical cycle. I demonstrate his code barfs on a ridiculously basic sentence. He'd wear confused frown. Oh, how strange. Like I just discovered the Death Star's one tiny weakness. 
he'd disappear into his cave for two hours. Triumphantly emerges with bug fix. Now it's perfect. Go to step one. In the end, the programmer was reduced to writing very primitive ELISA scripts, a crude natural language script dating back to the late 1960s, to mimic speech for the web pages just to cover up the fact that the algorithm was basically gibberish, and the company, it turned out, was a pure vanity project run by a rented CEO who used to manage a gym. Many duct taper jobs are the result of a glitch in the system that no one is bothered to correct. Tasks that could easily be automated, for instance, but haven't been, either because no one has gotten around to it, or because the manager wants to maintain as many subordinates as possible, or because of some structural confusion, or because of some combination of the three. I have any number of testimonies of this sort. Here's a sampling. I worked as a programmer for a travel company. Some poor person's job was to receive updated plane timetables via email several times a week and copy them by hand into Excel. My job was to transfer information about the state's oil wells into a different set of notebooks than they were currently in. My day consisted of photocopying veterans' health records for seven and a half hours a day. Workers were told time and again that it was too costly to buy the machines for digitizing. I was given one responsibility, watching an inbox that received emails in a certain form from employees in the company asking for tech help, and copy and paste it into a different form. Not only was this a textbook example of an automatable job, it actually used to be automated. There was some kind of disagreement between various managers that led to higher-ups issuing a standardization that nullified the automation. On the social level, duct-taping has traditionally been women's work. Throughout history, prominent men have wondered about oblivious to half of what's going on around them, treading on a thousand toes. It was typically their wives, sisters, mothers, or daughters who were left with the responsibility of performing the emotional labor of soothing egos, calming nerves, and negotiating solutions to the problems they created. In a more material sense, Duct-taping might be considered a classic working-class function. The architect may come up with a plan that looks stunning on paper, but it's the builder who has to figure out how to actually install electrical sockets in a circular room, or to use real duct-tape to hold things together that in reality simply don't fit together the way the blueprints say they should. In this latter case, we're not really talking about a bullshit job at all, any more than we're talking about a bullshit job when an orchestra conductor interprets the score of a Beethoven symphony or an actress plays Lady Macbeth. There will always be a certain gap between blueprints, schemas, and plans and their real-world implementation. Therefore, there will always be people charged with making the necessary adjustments. What makes such a role bullshit is when the plan obviously can't work and any competent architect should have known it when the system is so stupidly designed that it will fail in completely predictable ways. But rather than fix the problem, the organization prefers to hire full-time employees whose main or entire job is to deal with the damage. It's as if a homeowner, upon discovering a leak in the roof, decided it was too much bother to hire a roofer to reshingle it and instead stuck a bucket underneath and hired someone whose full-time job was to periodically dump the water. 
It goes without saying that duct tapers are almost always aware they have a bullshit job and are usually quite angry about it. I encountered a classic example of a duct taper while working as a lecturer at a prominent British university. One day, the wall shelves in my office collapsed. This left books scattered all over the floor and a jagged, half-dislocated metal frame that once held the shelves in place dangling cheerfully over my desk. A carpenter appeared an hour later to inspect the damage, but announced gravely that, since there were books all over the floor, safety rules prevented him from entering the room or taking further action. I would have to stack the books and then not touch anything else, whereupon he would return at the earliest available opportunity to remove the dangling frame. I duly stacked the books, but the carpenter never reappeared. There ensued a series of daily calls from anthropology to buildings and grounds. Each day, someone in the anthropology department would call, often multiple times, to ask about the fate of the carpenter, who always turned out to have something extremely pressing to do. By the time a week was out, I had taken to doing my work on the floor in a kind of little nest assembled from fallen books, and it had become apparent that there was one man employed by buildings and grounds whose entire job it was to apologize for the fact that the carpenter hadn't come. He seemed like a nice man. He was exceedingly polite and even-tempered, and always had just a slight trace of wistful melancholy about him, which made him quite well-suited for the job. Still, it's hard to imagine he was particularly happy with his choice of career. Most of all, there didn't seem any obvious reason the school couldn't simply get rid of the position and use the money to hire another carpenter, in which case his job would not be needed anyway. 4. What box tickers do I am using the term box tickers to refer to employees who exist only or primarily to allow an organization to be able to claim it is doing something that, in fact, it is not doing. The following testimony is from a woman hired to coordinate leisure activities in a care home. Betsy. Most of my job was to interview residents and fill out a recreation form that listed their preferences. That form was then logged on a computer and promptly forgotten about forever. The paper form was also kept in a binder, for some reason. Completion of the forms was by far the most important part of my job in the eyes of my boss, and I would catch hell if I got behind on them. A lot of the time, I would complete a form for a short-term resident, and they would check out the next day. I threw away mountains of paper. The interviews mostly just annoyed the residents, as they knew it was just bullshit paperwork, and no one was going to care about their individual preferences. The most miserable thing about box-ticking jobs is that the employee is usually aware that not only does the box-ticking exercise do nothing toward accomplishing its ostensible purpose, it actually undermines it, since it diverts time and resources away from the purpose itself. So here, Betsy was aware that the time she spent processing forms about how residents might wish to be entertained was time not spent entertaining them. She did manage to engage in some leisure activities with the residents. Fortunately, I was able to play the piano for the residents every day before dinner, and that was a beautiful time with singing, smiling, and tears. But as so often in such situations, there was a sense that these moments were indulgences granted her as a reward for carrying out her primary duties, 
which consisted of the filling out and proper disposition of forms. I have personal experience of this. Lecturers at LSE are expected to fill out elaborate time allocation reports with an hour-by-hour -hour breakdown of weekly professional activities. The forms offer endless fine distinctions between different sorts of administrative activity, but no explicit category for reading and writing books. When I pointed this out, I was told I could place such activities under LSE-funded research. That is, what was important about research from the school's perspective was, one, that I had not got myself outside funding to pay for this reading and writing activity, and two, that therefore they were paying me to do it when I could be doing my real job. We're all familiar with box-taking as a form of government. If a government's employees are caught doing something very bad, taking bribes, for instance, or regularly shooting citizens at traffic stops, the first reaction is invariably to create a fact-finding commission to get to the bottom of things. This serves two functions. First of all, it's a way of insisting that, aside from a small group of miscreants, no one had any idea that any of this was happening. This, of course, is rarely true. Second of all, it's a way of implying that once all the facts are in, someone will definitely do something about it. This is usually not true either. A fact-finding commission is a way of telling the public that the government is doing something it is not. But large corporations will behave in exactly the same way if, say, they are revealed to be employing slaves or child laborers in their garment factories or dumping toxic waste. All of this is bullshit, but the true bullshit job category applies to those who are not just there to stave off the public. This at least could be said to serve some kind of useful purpose for the company, but to those who do so within the organization itself. A fairly typical testimony from within the IT industry. I have often seen projects designed to obscure responsibility. For example, to evaluate an IT system. The purpose is not to affect the decision, which is taken somewhere in the corridors, but to claim that everyone was heard and all concerns were taken seriously. Since the project is only a pretense, all work on the project is wasted, and people soon realize and stop taking it seriously. This kind of false consensus is common in ostensibly collegial institutions like universities or NGOs, but is quite common in the more hierarchical corporations as well. The corporate compliance industry might be considered an intermediary form. It is explicitly created by U.S. government regulation. Layla I work in a growing industry born out of the federal regulation, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Basically, U.S. companies have to do due diligence to make sure they aren't doing business with corrupt overseas firms. Clients are big companies, tech, auto companies, etc., who might have myriad smallish businesses they supply or work with in places like China, my region. Our company creates due diligence reports for our clients. Basically, one to two hours of Internet research that is then edited into a report. There is a lot of jargon and training that goes into making sure every report is consistent. Sometimes the Internet reveals something that's an easy red flag, like a company's boss at a criminal case, but I would say the realness-slash-bullshit factor is 20 to 80. Unless someone has been criminally charged, 
I have no way of knowing from my apartment in Brooklyn if they've been handed an envelope full of cash in Guangzhou. To give a sense of the scale of this industry, Citigroup announced in 2014 that by the next year it would have 30,000 employees working in compliance, or about 13% of the total staff. Of course, on some level, all bureaucracies work on this principle. Once you introduce formal measures of success, reality for the organization becomes that which exists on paper, and the human reality that lies behind it is a secondary consideration at best. I vividly remember the endless discussions that ensued when I was a junior professor at Yale University about a first-year archaeology graduate student whose husband had died in a car crash on the first day of the term. For some reason, the shock caused her to develop a mental block on doing paperwork. She still attended lectures and was an avid participant in class discussions, and she turned in papers and got excellent grades. But eventually, the professor would always discover she hadn't formally signed up for the class. As the eminence grise of the department would point out during faculty meetings, that was all that really mattered. As far as the guys in registration are concerned, if you don't get the forms in on time, you don't take the course. So your performance is completely irrelevant. Other professors would mumble and fuss, and there would be occasional careful allusions to her. Personal tragedy, the exact nature of which was never specified. I had to learn about it from other students later on, but no one raised any fundamental objections to registration's attitude. That was just reality, from an administrative point of view. Eventually, after last-minute attempts to have her fill out a sheaf of late application appeal documents, also met with no response, and after numerous long soliloquies from the director of graduate studies. About just how inconsiderate it was of her to make things so difficult for those who were only trying to help her, except of course by trying to make some special arrangement that would allow someone else to do the paperwork for her. This was considered, for some reason, quite out of the question. The student was expelled from the program on the grounds that anyone so incapable of handling paperwork was obviously not suited for an academic career. This mentality seems to increase, not decrease, when government functions are reorganized to be more like a business, and citizens, for example, are redefined as customers. Mark is senior quality and performance officer in a local council in the United Kingdom. Mark, most of what I do, especially since moving away from frontline customer-facing roles, involves ticking boxes. Pretending things are great to senior managers and generally feeding the beast with meaningless numbers that give the illusion of control, none of which helps the citizens of that council in the slightest. I've heard an apocryphal story about a chief executive who turned on the fire alarm so all the staff gathered in the car park. He then told all the employees who were with a customer when the alarm went off to return to the building immediately. The other employees could return when one of the people dealing with the customer needed them for something, and so on and so forth. If this had happened when I was at that council, I would have been in the car park for a very long time. Mark goes on to describe local government as little more than an endless sequence of box-ticking rituals revolving around monthly target figures. These were put up on posters in the office and coded green for improving. Amber for stable, 
and red for decline. Supervisors appeared innocent even of the basic concept of random statistical variation, or at least pretended to be, as each month, those with green-coated figures were rewarded, while those with red urged to do a better job. Almost none of this had any real bearing on providing services. Mark. One project I worked on was to come up with some housing service standards. The project involved playing lip service to customers and having long discussions with managers at meetings, before finally writing up a report that got praised, mainly because it was presented and laid out attractively, by managers in the meeting. The report then got filed away, making absolutely no difference to the residents, but still somehow requiring many hours of staff time, not to mention all the hours the residents themselves spent filling in surveys or attending focus groups. In my experience, this is how most policy works in local government. Another good example of a public-private box-ticking industry is in construction. Consider the following testimony. Sophie. I'm in this lucrative consultant line of work for planning permissions. Back in the 60s, just about the only consultant who submitted information for a planning permission was the architect. Now, a planning permission for a large-ish building is accompanied by a long list of reports by consultants, including me. Environmental Impact Assessment Landscape and Visual Impact Assessment Transport Report Wind Microclimate Assessment Sunlight-slash-Daylight Analysis Heritage Setting Assessment Archaeology Assessment Landscape Maintenance Management Report Tree Impact Assessment Flood Risk Assessment And there's more than that. Each report is about 50 to 100 pages, and yet the strange thing is, the resulting buildings are ugly boxes remarkably similar to the ones we built in the 60s, so I don't think the reports are serving any purpose. Note here the importance of the physical attractiveness of the report. This is a theme that comes up frequently in testimonies about box-ticking operations, and even more so in the corporate sector than in government. If the ongoing importance of a manager is measured by how many people he has working under him, the immediate material manifestation of that manager's power and prestige is the visual quality of his presentations and reports. The meetings in which such emblems are displayed might be considered the high rituals of the corporate world. And just as the retinues of a feudal lord might include servants whose only role, or only ostensible role, was to polish his horse's armor or tweeze his mustache before tournaments or pageants, so may present-day executives keep employees whose sole purpose is to prepare their PowerPoint presentations or craft the maps, cartoons, photographs, or illustrations that accompany their reports. Many of these reports are nothing more than props in a kabuki-like corporate theater. No one actually reads them all the way through. One corporate consultant wrote, I look forward to the day that someone in my industry steps up and goes full SoCal affair, i.e. submits a consulting report that is entirely made up of vague business buzzwords and doesn't actually contain any structured information at all. Although I suspect this has already happened many times, just without the consultants in question being conscious of it. But this doesn't stop ambitious executives from cheerfully shelling out half a workman's yearly wages of company money just to be able to say, Ooh, yes, we commissioned a report on that. Hannibal. 
I do digital consultancy for global pharmaceutical companies' marketing departments. I often work with global PR agencies on this and write reports with titles like How to Improve Engagement Among Key Digital Healthcare Stakeholders. It is pure, unadulterated bullshit and serves no purpose beyond ticking boxes for marketing departments. But it is very easy to charge a very large amount of money to write bullshit reports. I was recently able to charge around £12,000 to write a two-page report for a pharmaceutical client to present during a global strategy meeting. The report wasn't used in the end, because they didn't manage to get to that agenda point during their allotted meeting time, but the team I wrote it for was very happy with it nonetheless. There are whole minor industries that exist just to facilitate such box-ticking gestures. I worked for some years for the Interlibrary Loan Office in the University of Chicago Science Library, and at least 90% of what people did there was photocopy and mail out articles from medical journals with titles such as The Journal of Cell Biology, Clinical Endocrinology, and The American Journal of Internal Medicine. I was lucky I did something else. For the first few months, I was under the naive impression that these articles were being sent to doctors. To the contrary, a bemused coworker eventually explained to me, the overwhelming majority were being sent to lawyers. This made sense in retrospect, because if you are a medical researcher, you already have all these journals in the library or have access to digitized versions. There would be no reason to fall back on interlibrary loan. Apparently, if you were suing a doctor for malpractice, Part of the show involves assembling an impressive pile of scientific papers to plunk down on the table at an appropriately theatrical moment and then enter into evidence. While everyone knows that no one will actually read these papers, there is always the possibility that the defense attorney or one of his expert witnesses might pick one up at random for inspection. So it is considered important to ensure your legal aides locate articles that can at least plausibly be said to bear in some way on the case. As we will see in later chapters, there are all sorts of different ways that private companies employ people to be able to tell themselves they are doing something that they aren't really doing. Many large corporations, for instance, maintain their own in-house magazines or even television channels, the ostensible purpose of which is to keep employees up to date on interesting news and developments, but which, in fact, exist for almost no reason other than to allow executives to experience that warm and pleasant feeling that comes when you see a favorable story about you in the media, or to know what it's like to be interviewed by people who look and act exactly like reporters, but never ask questions you wouldn't want them to ask. Such venues tend to reward their writers, producers, and technicians very handsomely, often at two or three times the market rate but I've never talked to anyone who does such work full-time who doesn't say the job is bullshit. It's interesting to compare corporate magazines with the ones that labor unions put out, which I suspect predate them as a literary form. They certainly have their share of puff pieces, but also discuss serious problems. My father was a member of Amalgamated Lithographers Local 1 in New York, a printer's union, and I remember as a child taking pride in the fact that their in-house magazine, Lithopinion, was by far the most beautiful magazine I'd ever seen, owing to their eagerness to show off new graphic techniques. It also contained real, hard-hitting political analysis. 5. 
What taskmasters do. Taskmasters fall into two subcategories. Type 1 contains those whose role consists entirely of assigning work to others. This job can be considered bullshit if the taskmaster herself believes that there is no need for her intervention and that if she were not there, underlings would be perfectly capable of carrying on by themselves. Type 1 taskmasters can thus be considered the opposite of flunkies. Unnecessary superiors rather than unnecessary subordinates. Whereas the first variety of taskmaster is merely useless, the second variety does actual harm. These are taskmasters whose primary role is to create bullshit tasks for others to do, to supervise bullshit, or even to create entirely new bullshit jobs. One might also refer to them as bullshit generators. Type 2 taskmasters may also have real duties in addition to their role as taskmaster, but if all or most of what they do is create bullshit tasks for others, then their own jobs can be classified as bullshit too. As one might imagine, it is especially difficult to gather testimonies from taskmasters. Even if they do secretly think their jobs are useless, they are much less likely to admit it. For instance, a recent survey determined that 80% of employees feel their managers are useless and that they could do their job just as well without them. It does not appear to document how many managers agree, but one has to assume the number is substantially lower. But I found a small number willing to come clean. Ben represents a classic example of Type 1. He is a middle manager. Ben. I have a bullshit job, and it happens to be in middle management. Ten people work for me, but from what I can tell, they can all do the work without my oversight. My only function is to hand them work, which I suppose the people that actually generate the work could do themselves. I will say that in a lot of cases, the work that is assigned is a product of other managers with bullshit jobs, which makes my job two levels of bullshit. I just got promoted to this job, and I spend a lot of my time looking around and wondering what I'm supposed to be doing. As best I can tell, I'm supposed to be motivating the workers. I sort of doubt that I'm earning my salary doing that, even if I'm really trying. Ben calculates that he spends at least 75% of his time allocating tasks and then monitoring if the underling is doing them, even though he insists he has absolutely no reason to believe the underlings in question would behave any differently if he weren't there. He also says he keeps trying to allocate himself real work on the sly, but when he does so, his own superiors eventually notice and tell him to cut it out. But then, when he sent in his testimony, Ben had only been at the job for two and a half months, which might explain his candor. If he does succumb eventually and accepts his new role in life, he will come to understand that, as another testimony put it, the entire job of middle management is to ensure the lower-level people hit their productivity numbers and will therefore start coming up with formal statistical metrics that his underlings can try to falsify. Being forced to supervise people who don't need supervision is actually a fairly common complaint. Here, for instance, is the testimony of an assistant localization manager named Alfonso. Alfonso. My job is to oversee and coordinate a team of five translators. The problem with that is that the team is perfectly capable of managing itself. They are trained in all the tools they need to use, and they can, of course, manage their time and tasks. 
so I normally act as a task gatekeeper. Requests come to me through JIRA, a bureaucratic online tool for managing tasks, and I pass them on to the relevant person or persons. Other than that, I'm in charge of sending periodic reports to my manager, who, in turn, will incorporate them into more important reports to be sent to the CEO. This kind of combination of task mastering and box ticking would appear to be the very essence of middle management. In Alfonso's case, he did actually serve one useful function, but only because his team of translators, based in Ireland, was assigned so little work by the central office in Japan that he had to constantly figure out ways to finagle the reports to make it look like they were very busy and no one needed to be laid off. Let us move on, then, to taskmasters of the second type, those who make up bullshit for others to do. We may begin with Chloe, who held the post of academic dean at a prominent British university, with a specific responsibility to provide strategic leadership to a troubled campus. Now, those of us toiling in the academic mills who still like to think of ourselves as teachers and scholars before all else have come to fear the word strategic. Strategic mission statements, or even worse, strategic vision documents, instill a particular terror, since these are the primary means by which corporate management techniques, setting up quantifiable methods for assessing performance, forcing teachers and scholars to spend more and more of their time assessing and justifying what they do and less and less time actually doing it, are insinuated into academic life. The same suspicions hold for any document that repeatedly uses the words quality, excellence, leadership, or stakeholder. So, for my own part, my immediate reaction upon hearing that Chloe was in a strategic leadership position was to suspect that not only was her job bullshit, it actively inserted bullshit into others' lives as well. According to Chloe's testimony, this was exactly the case. Though, if at first, not precisely for the reasons I imagined. Chloe. The reason that my dean's role was a bullshit job is the same reason that all non-executive deans, PVCs, pro-vice-chancellors, and other strategic roles in universities are bullshit jobs. The real roles of power and responsibility within a university trace the flow of money through the organization. An executive PVC or dean, in other words, he or she who holds the budget, can cajole, coerce, encourage, bully, and negotiate with departments about what they can, ought, or might want to do, using the stick or carrot of money. Strategic deans and other such roles have no carrots or sticks. They are non-executive. They hold no money, just, as was once described to me, the power of persuasion and influence. I did not sit on university leadership and so was not part of the bun fights about targets, overall strategy, performance measures, audits, etc. I had no budget. I had no authority over the buildings, the timetable, or any other operational matters. All I could do was come up with a new strategy that was, in effect, a respin of already agreed-upon university strategies. So her primary role was to come up with yet another strategic vision statement, of the kind that are regularly deployed to justify the number-crunching and box-taking that has become so central to British academic life. As we shall see, 
This is no less true of America or anywhere else. But since Chloe had no actual power, it was all meaningless shadow play. What she did get was what all high-level university administrators now receive as their primary badge of honor, her own tiny empire of administrative staff. Chloe, I was given a 75% full-time equivalent personal assistant, a 75% full-time equivalent special project and policy support officer, and a full-time postdoctoral research fellow, plus an expenses allowance of 20,000 pounds. In other words, a shedload of public money went into supporting a bullshit job. The project and policy support officer was there to help me with projects and policies. The PA was brilliant, but ended up just being a glorified travel agent and diary secretary. The research fellow was a waste of time and money because I am a lone scholar and don't actually need an assistant. So I spent two years of my life making up work for myself and for other people. Actually, Chloe appears to have been a very generous boss. As she spent her own hours developing strategies she knew would be ignored, her special projects officer ran around doing timetable scenarios and gathering useful statistics. The personal assistant kept her diary, and the research fellow spent her time working on her own personal research. This, in itself, seems perfectly innocent. At least none of them was doing any harm. Who knows? Maybe the research fellow even ended up making an important contribution to human knowledge of her own. The truly disturbing thing about the whole arrangement, according to Chloe, was her ultimate realization that if she had been given real power, she probably would have done harm. Because after two years as dean, she was unwise enough to accept a gig as head of her old department and was thus able to see things from the other side. That is, before quitting six months later in horror and disgust. Chloe My very brief stint as head of department reminded me that at the very minimum, 90% of the role is bullshit. Filling out the forms that the faculty dean sends so that she can write her strategy documents that get sent up the chain of command. Producing a confetti of paperwork as part of the auditing and monitoring of research activities and teaching activities producing plan after plan after five-year plan, justifying why departments need to have the money and staff they already have, doing bloody annual appraisals that go into a drawer never to be looked at again. And, in order to get these tasks done, as HOD, you ask your staff to help out. Bullshit proliferation. So what do I think? It is not capitalism per se that produces the bullshit, here, Chloe seems to be responding to the title of a version of my original essay that had run on evonomics.com under the title, Why Capitalism Creates Pointless Jobs. I didn't make up the title. Normally, I avoid attributing agency to abstractions. It is managerialist ideologies put into practice in complex organizations. As managerialism embeds itself, you get entire cadres of academic staff whose job it is just to keep the managerialist plates spinning. Strategies, performance targets, audits, reviews, appraisals, renewed strategies, etc., etc., which happen in an almost wholly and entirely disconnected fashion from the real lifeblood of universities, teaching and education. On this, I will leave Chloe the last word.
Chloe at least was allocated her staff first, and only then had to figure out how to keep them occupied. Tanya, who had a series of taskmaster jobs in both the public and private sectors, provides us with an explanation of how entirely new bullshit positions can come about. This last testimony is unique because it explicitly incorporates the typology developed in this chapter. Toward the end of my research, I laid out my then-nascent five-part division on Twitter to encourage comments, amendments, or reactions. Tanya felt the terms fit her experience well. Tanya. I might be a taskmaster in your taxonomy of BS jobs. I was one of two deputy directors of an administrative services office that handled HR, budget, grants, contracts, and travel for two bureaus with total resources of about $600 million and a thousand 